Good evening and welcome to the January meeting of the Board of Supervisors, Finance, Government Operations and Economic Development Committee. This room has a hearing loop. If you need hearing assistance, switch your hearing aids to the telecoil mode. If you need a headset, we have those available as well. Please see the clerk to request one. Uh, we have a full agenda this evening, but uh, before we begin, I'd just like to take a moment to thank Supervisor Umstead for her work chairing this committee over the last two years. Uh, coming out of COVID, we certainly had some very full agendas and uh, a lot of work was done with the committee. So I appreciate uh, all the effort that she put into that. Um, I'd like to thank my colleagues for the opportunity to chair finance once again. Look forward to working with everybody in this capacity. Uh, we have a bit of a skeleton crew tonight. Uh, we're down uh, Chair Randall, who had a conflict with Northern Virginia Transportation Authority, and then Supervisor Sains had a conflict with the rescheduled meeting, uh, <coughs> meeting date. We did reschedule the meeting so that we could all participate in the uh, Dulles Greenway State Corporation Commission hearing at Freedom High School, and we had seven out of nine members of the Board of Supervisors present for that, which I think was a, a great showing uh, from the county. Um, and I think the other two were with us in spirit. So uh, that was worthwhile, but it did present some challenges from a scheduling standpoint for us. Uh, we will plan on taking a dinner break around seven o'clock. Um, just a couple other small housekeeping things. Uh, Supervisor Staines is vice chair of the committee. So in the event that I'm not here, he would take over. Um, in terms of how we'll run uh, motions and timing, we'll have time motions, but we will not have time on questions. Uh, would ask everybody just to be reasonable uh, on that, especially tonight, since we had such a late uh, morning, <laughs> night, morning, last night. Um, but uh, generally speaking, we'll let folks uh, ask the questions that they need since we are in committee. Okay, we have, uh, I'm actually going to propose 11 items for consent, and they are as follows. Item two, quarterly report, upcoming contracts, third quarter, FY24. Item four, Contract Renewal, Roadway and Transportation Design Services. Item number five, FTE Authority for the Department of Building and Development. Item number six, uh, calendar year 2024 payment standards and utility allowance, uh, allowances for the Housing Choice Voucher Program. Item number seven, affirmation of personal property tax rates for tax year 2024. Item eight, mid-year 2024 child protective services, family services, specialist budget allocations. Item number nine, 2023 Family Services Advisory Board Annual Report. Item number 10, Fiscal Impact Committee 2023 Annual Report. Item number 13, American Rescue Plan ARPA Tourism Grant Recommendations. Item number 14, American Rescue Plan Act uh, Update Recommendation for ARPA Community Services Grant Program. And item 17, second substantial amendment to the five-year uh, 21 to 25 consolidated plan and the FY24 annual action plan. I'll move approval of the consent agenda. Is there a second? Second. Seconded by both my colleagues. Uh, we'll say Supervisor Ruff said, uh, any discussion on the consent agenda? Seeing none, uh, all in favor say aye. Aye. Anyone opposed? Motion carries, Three zero two. Okay, we'll move on to our information items, uh, the first of which is our monthly Department of Economic Development report. We have Colleen with us from uh, Economic Development. Good evening. Good evening. Thank you. I'm happy to present to you tonight the first Economic Development report of the year and the halfway mark for the fiscal year. 
Um, so far in fiscal year 24, DED has secured 69 wins, just under 2,000 jobs, and $4.13 billion in investment. Our vacancy rate is currently at 2.9% with a direct vacant available office vacancy at 73 uh, since April 2023, demand for travel-related business has been comparable to 2019 levels. We're talking in the uh, travel industry uh, in terms of number of customers, but has been surpassing 2019 levels in terms of revenue. Um, we're seeing the number of passengers at Dulles Airport was actually 5.9% higher in October compared to October 2019, so definitely getting back to pre-pandemic levels, uh, which is good all around for business. Uh, nationally, jobs increased by 216,000 in December, but this continues a trend towards what's called a soft landing, or referring to bringing inflation back down without causing a recession. So lower monthly increases in jobs um, as jobs continue to be added every month over the three-year period. Um, October is still the most recent month we have for local unemployment data with the rate at 2.6 for Loudoun, 2.7 for Virginia, and 3.9 for the U.S. The rate for the U.S. declined slightly to 3.7 in November and stayed steady at 3.7 again in December. So we'll continue to monitor um, our seeing an increase in, um, as we do at this time of year in job fairs and boards and things of that nature. Um, in addition to what you see in your packet, programmatically we will be increasing a lot of our business development efforts as we do as we go into the new year, particularly around our targeted industries and increasing the diversification of those wins um, as we get into the second half of the year. Um, one last item of note that was in your packet. Um, this year, we're very happy as, as we bring to this committee um, the advisory bodies, the economic development advisory bodies on a regular basis. Uh, staff has created um, the inaugural, but hopefully annual, Economic Development Advisory Committee um, orientation. We'll be hosting the Economic Development Advisory Commission, the Rural Economic Development Council, and the Economic Development Authority members for a half-day event where they will receive all of their required training, but also have an opportunity to hear from the county, from the department about economic development priorities, strategies, and then have the opportunity to collaborate and to network around their work um, goals before they bring them to you in the coming months. And with that, I'll take any questions. Okay, questions from members of the committee. Supervisor Brisbane. Uh, thank you. I don't really have a question. Um, I was interested in your Launch Loudon events, and I yes. think the first one you did was in Sterling. And I just wanted to mention that spring is a lovely time to visit Algonquian District, and we have some beautiful venues that could host. We would be happy to, and one of the goals of the program is to make sure we're hurting all districts, all towns. Um, our staff actually worked very diligently to make sure that all the towns are represented and will continue to spread those resources across the county. Thank you. Thank you. Any questions? Um, just quickly, I noted the on the commercial vacancy rates, um, a real improvement um, in retail, um, which is something that we had kind of been hearing a lot about how it was dying. but. Um, now, maybe that some of the inventory is just disappearing, but the vacancy rate's down to 3.4%. Um, any, you know, any comment on that? I think we're still seeing a real shifting coming out of COVID of who is um, retail being different than office. I think we're going to see a very, very difficult office market uh, over the next three years, as we're all aware of. But I think we, sh you know, Loudoun is, is, is a little bit more isolated than that. But what's happening is that retail is continuing to pick up from a spending standpoint, particularly as inflation continues to to change. So uh, we are seeing um, an increased interest in retail. If you'll see from our um, diversified wins, it's still one of our highest. I believe it's our third highest 
this category. Uh, we continue to see that as, as a real strong point, that diversification within retail as well. Um, but in terms of product, uh, I think we're seeing a shifting more than a change at this point. Okay. Makes sense. All right. Thank you very much. Thank you. Have a good evening. Next item is item three, the quarterly report capital improvement projects. We'll have our capital team come on up. All right. Good evening, Scott. Thank you, and good evening, uh, Chair Letourneau and members of the committee. Uh, we are here to present the quarterly report for the capital improvement projects for the second quarter of fiscal year 2024, which ran October through December of 23. Uh, along with me tonight are Nancy Boyd, Jim Zeller, and Mark Hoffman to answer any questions you might have. Um, I would like to note that uh, our new PMO team from Kimberly Horn is now on board. Um, PMO project project ma uh, pro uh, program management program office. management office. Yes, yeah, okay. so they're integrated with us, uh, work with us and OMB and other other uh, to support. And uh, they're getting up to speed. And this is the first quarterly report that they were able to assist on. Uh, we don't have anything uh, significant to highlight for you this quarter, so we are uh, happy to take any questions you might have for us. Okay, uh, Supervisor Brisbane, you have a question. Thank you. Um, on the Route 7 pedestrian crossings, um, are they all complete? Or are you just talking about the one at Potomac View Road? They're all complete. The other two, one at Lakeland and one at, well, the one at Lakeland and one at Potomac View were completed like a little over a year ago. Okay. And the one that was, the third one that was just completed was at Campus Drive, Bartholomew Fair. Uh, at the note right where the Nova campus is. Okay. Okay. Yeah. And so we're just working on signaling timing, signal timing. No, that, that's all complete. All done. All, okay. All okay. Great. I've, I drive through there often and, um, I've noticed, uh, I've noticed they've been working on it, but I wasn't, I wasn't, uh, convinced that they were complete. Well, that's great news. Yeah. Um, and then the Sterling volunteer fire and rescue station, will there be a, um, celebration for the completion? Yes, that is, uh, I believe, in the works, and I think they're trying to schedule that with the uh, the volunteer organization. Okay, okay, I'll yeah, be excited that for that. Works. It's because I went to the groundbreaking. Um, the Bless Park um, facility improvements design phase was completed during this quarter. What is next? So it is currently advertised for bid. So that went out, I believe, last week or so, and. Um, in about three or four weeks, we'll get the bids in, we'll evaluate the bids, and then we'll come back to the board. Um, and I have to look at the, the which, which month it'll come back, but May, February, okay. or March uh, for the uh, board to approve that contract. Okay, and that's running as planned on schedule? Yes. Okay, yes, fantastic. I have, I have actually been wondering about that one. Um, and then the LPAT signature project includes the bridge over Horse Pen Run and the PHT construction. Yes, that um, is included. And that's all included in the design and, and all that. Yep, and we've okay, picked that design great, off. Okay, great, great. Um, I was really disappointed, though, that the Potomac View Road, um, uh, I, I guess it's a shared use path or a sidewalk um, between River Meadows and Route 7 has been delayed about six months because of utility coordination? Well, it's, it's a variety of coordination, yes. Okay. Utility coordination, the other part of it is coordination with uh, uh, the Nova campus. Really? Uh, 
Well, it's it's not. We're, we're all in agreement on okay. where the trail will go. The, we're we're now getting into the nitty gritty of who's maintaining what, and so we've had some discussions uh, between our department, general services, and. Uh, the Nova campus there's some disagreement still that we're trying to work out with them on specifically stormwater management maintenance um, to not get too into the weeds but I'll have to get a little bit into the weeds since that is a state agency they actually have their own stormwater permit that is separate from the county stormwater permit okay. so one of the facilities for this trail is on that property and we collectively the county feel that that should be under the Nova campus's stormwater permit and they would like it to be under like us to maintain it but if it's not under our permit we shouldn't be maintaining it so it's okay. it's it's we're getting into some of okay. those nitty-gritty details and uh, and and then there is a, a little bit of coordination with Dominion to finalize the relocation of some poles out there but the, okay. the trail itself, I think we're all in agreement of where that's going to be. It's it's getting those details ironed out. All right. That, that's frustrating. I see so many people walking on the east side of that road and really taking their lives into their hands. But I also understand that things are always more complicated than we think they're going to be. All right. Thank you. Thank you. Supervisor Umstead. Uh, thank you, uh, Chair Letourneau. Um, on the Route 15 North Project, the roundabout at Sphinx Ferry Road and New Valley Church Road, um, it's been delayed because of, again, utility issues, utility relocation issues. Are we finding any delays in either that part of the Route 15 widening project or the first um, phase? Um, because of land acquisition issues? I'm gonna answer. As in property owners not wanting to sell us the land. The, well, the answer right now is not yet. Okay. We are in the process in, for the, the widening between Battlefield and Whites Ferry. We are now sending out offer letters for property, for land acquisition. So we have not gotten to the point where we're now getting responses back from individuals quite yet, uh, but that is happening right now, the offer process. Uh, at, up at Spinks Ferry, that has not been initiated yet because we are still finalizing plats. Um, it's, it's sort of the domino effect. We are finalizing utility relocation. Uh, one of the issues that we came up upon is is we've after going through one round of coordination with the utilities we've had to go back and take a few more soil borings to find the vertical location of a couple of buried utilities that uh, were previously not identified and now we're working through to identify that so we can get those on the plats get the plats approved then we start making offers so that's All right. the process okay I know that Nancy and I had had a very brief discussion on, on this question probably over a year ago. Um, there has been an effort of some folks living north on Route 15 to um, place conservation easements over the land adjacent to the proposed road 
in order to prevent the county from moving forward with the project. Do we have any more information on whether that effort would be successful or not, or do we believe we can go forward with the full project regardless of conservation easements? Supervisor Umstead, are you referring to the um, area a little bit farther north up, to, up towards Luckett's? Yes. yes. Yeah, we're not quite to that um, point yet where we have received any additional information. All right. Nothing to report there yet. Do, do you all have any read from the county attorney on whether placing a conservation easement over land adjacent to a road project would make the road project impossible? Because I think that was the intent of some of the conservation easements. Yeah, my, so I've had some of that conversation. Um, it certainly does make it more difficult. There's a process that we would need to go through um, and we would need to demonstrate through an environmental review process um, that we had no other alternative um, other than through an area like that that had been conserved. So um, there are steps that we would need to go through and there's no promises, you know, how successful that would be, but there is a process. All right, thank you very much. Um, thanks, just one question. So one of my kind of pet projects to get moving is this Tall Cedars and Nations intersection, which has been really taking a long time. Um, South Riding Proprietary, um, I think needs to give an easement to DTCI. They've been waiting for a call on that for a while. And uh, so they would let, they have their folks all ready to go uh, to turn it around quickly for us because I asked them to. So can we please reach out to them and get the easement moving there so we can get in, get that in line to be able to do the work? Yeah, the, the, the letter is under review and about to go out. Oh, okay, well good, great. That's all I have. Okay, any other questions on the capital improvements projects? Thank you very much. Okay, uh, next up, moving into the action items is item 11, which is Board of Equalization Bylaws Adoption and Annual Reports. Mr. Keisters, welcome. Good evening. Item 11 presents the Board of Equalization's bylaws as well as the annual report. Um, this is Kevin Keisters, he's the chair of the Board of Equalization and Susan Humphreys, who's our staff liaison. This item is um, presented to you to conform with the board's um, adopted bylaws for advisory bodies. The bylaws and noted in the staff report recommends one material change to the template, which um, Board of Equalization members would like to be exempt from the rule that they can only serve on the BOE and one additional advisory body. The justification of that is that the BOE only meets when necessary. Um, their meetings are typically in the August timeframe when not many other advisory bodies meet and they would like the opportunity to serve the county and other um, advisory bodies beyond the BOE and, and just one other staff, um, I'm sorry, advisory body. And then the annual report is included. This is not a new report, it's distributed to the board and the treasurer on an annual basis, but it's included to comply with the board's uh, new rules. Happy to take any questions. 
Okay. Um, so, Supervisor Briskman was chair of the Committee of Committees, mm -hmm. and I think has some strong feelings on the bylaw issue, so I'll <laughs> turn it over to you, and then maybe you guys can hash it out right here. Thank you. Um, so, uh, I'm inclined, well, first of all, is the committee proposing just to strike that part of the bylaws or change the wording? Uh, yes, ma'am. We were looking to strike it. Um, we thought about trying to reword it, and we thought, well, that that brought on more questions mm. and more coordination. Mm -hmm. Okay. And how many folks are on the committee? Uh, the board? I think seven. Seven. Right now. Okay. Five with two alternates. Five with two alternates. Okay. So um, we we talked about this a lot during the ad hoc um, committee that I chaired, which reviewed um, all of our committees, boards, and commissions in the county. Um, and it was, gosh, a year, 18 months that, that we worked on this, and we debated this a lot. Um, part of the reason that language is in there as our um, standardized bylaws is because we really want to encourage new voices to serve in the county and um, you know from from various walks of life various you know age groups genders races and all that so that's the main reason why that is in there so that we can just get some new voices in the county um, in addition um, we we, um, I, I actually lost my second part I was going to say about that. <laughs> but anyway, I'm, I'm not supportive. Of, oh, I know what I was going to say. My fear with, with doing this and just leaving it open to how many committees and commissions and boards the five members and the two alternates could serve on, um, I think that there's going to be a number of other boards and commissions that are going to come and try to strike that from their bylaws, and that then would sort of be a slippery slope and, and um, dilute the reason why we put it in there in the first place. So I, I would not be supporting, also because the folks on that board still have an opportunity to serve on one other um, committee or commission, so. Okay. Supervisor um, Rumpstead. I mean, I'm, I'm happy to support the change. I don't have a problem with it. The change that's in the motion? Yes. Okay. Um, so let me ask then, Mr. Keeser, so and you're, do you know how many members of the board serve on other more than one other commission? Was this was this because of a particular conflict or just a general feeling or statement? There's a particular conflict, um, as well as there's two other reasons. Um, the, the first reason was that the the BOE is actually a, it's not an advisory board; it's statutorily set up um, state law. And um, so from that perspective, uh, it doesn't serve the same function. We actually, we're like the arbitrators for the real estate assessment. So if somebody doesn't like it and they work with the Commission of the Revenue and they can't resolve it with them, then they come to us. And, and, and Commission of Revenue actually does a pretty good job because over the years, the number of cases have gone way down. Um, the second thing, and, and this wasn't in our discussion, but... Um, I literally just thought about it right now. Um, there are uh, certain requirements for membership on the board. Um, a certain percentage, and I forget what it is, have to be homeowners. Also, you have to be either a realtor uh, in the construction industry or in like the finance real estate industry. So um, 
if you're not in one of those, I, I want to say, and I, and I apologize because I didn't even think about this until just now, um, I think you can probably have like one person who has none of those affiliations on the board, but the majority has to be in a certain percentage. So that said, the specific conflict um, is a gentleman by the name of Cliff Kears. You probably all know because Supervisor Sains just appointed him to the Planning Commission. Although when we were discussing this, he had no idea it was going to be in the Planning Commission. I actually am on the fiscal or was on the Fiscal Impact Commission or committee. And I thought he would be great on that committee because he's got that mindset and he's been HOA and all that. And but he's also on the Heritage Commission, uh, appointed by Supervisor Glass. So, so right now he's on the BOE, he's on the Heritage Commission, and now he's on the Planning Commission. So there actually would be a conflict. But but I would also say this: our bylaws, if we if the BOE bylaws, as we proposed, just struck that line item. It wouldn't change the other bylaws. So if you're on any other committee, you wouldn't be able to serve on two advisory committees. So well, if we, if, but if you struck, we'll have a, you struck that completely, then you could serve on like an unlimited number of committees, right? Uh, the, the BOE bylaw would not prohibit you from serving on every committee, but the bylaws of any other committee might keep you from serving on multiple oh. committees. I, I mean, I... Well, that's... I guess that is a point, because every other board and commission has has a bylaw that says you can only serve on one other one, right? So... And, and I mean, to be honest, Supervisor Briskman, um, I, had, I didn't know what... I had not known what the meaning was behind putting it in there. I certainly understand it. And quite frankly, none of us are going to lose sleep if... You just tell us no, we're going to keep it in there. Um, well, that, because all the other boards and commissions have that restriction, if you only have one that doesn't, it's kind of meaningless, right? Because by almost definition, if the other one you're serving on would prohibit you from serving on more than one other one. Uh, yes. Um, well, so the, the, the bylaws, as, as we understood it, is for an advisory board. Oh. And so since, since the BOE itself... I don't think falls under that definition. I see. I mean, and again, maybe I'm wrong. Um, I mean, to be honest, the, the, the database setup now, you can look and see, pull anybody's name immediately and see how many they're on. So uh, as, as supervisors, you have the option to limit that as much as you want. Although yeah. it, if you want it to automatically happen, of course, that would make sense to have it in the bylaws. Okay. Um, I could really go either way. Um, well, I guess another option would be if the BOE bylaw said two instead of one as sort of a compromise because... I, I, I mean, I, I don't have the committee here, yeah. but I would imagine, based on the conversation I remember, that would be fine too. I mean, because to be honest, uh, in the person in... We're talking about Mr. Kiris. I mean, he's retired now, but still serving on three boards. Yeah, that's too much. That's a commitment, but you can do it. But when you get past that, you can't really do it a good a good job. Yeah. Um. You would just prefer no change. Keep it. Uh, keep it. Uh, uh, yes, Chair. Um, I I would just prefer no change. Frankly, um, as I said, I think it's a slippery slope, and Mr. Kiris's 
actually an example as to why we put that in there. I mean, I, no, it's not personal at all. It's just to have someone on the BOE, to have someone on the B, if we didn't have this rule, he, he would be on the BOE, the Heritage Commission, the Planning Commission, and FIC. That's, that's, I, how do I want to put it? I, I guess in a county of 430,000 people, I feel like we can find other voices um, and not have always the same perspective um, on all these different boards and commissions. Um, and uh, yeah, so I, I'm not, I, I wouldn't support it. I would hope that um, my colleagues would understand um, why we made the rule and you know, it's not personal. We just wanna make sure that folks have opportunity and we also have a you know, variety of voices and opinions and perspectives on our boards and commissions. Yeah. Or we could just simply not appoint people that are in more than one. Well, okay, well actually, to address that, yeah. have you looked at Onboard lately? Have I looked at what? Onboard? Onboard, yeah. I mean, it's really complicated to try to figure out who sits on what board and commission and committee. I was just trying to, my staff and I have actually struggled with this for the last four years, trying to figure out when there's open seats and when there's not open seats and who sits on how many other ones. Um, it's complicated. And so that's also part of the reason why we put this rule in place, because it's really hard to keep track of all of that um, from, from a supervisor standpoint. And our staff could spend inordinate number of hours trying to figure out whether the person I want to appoint is already on two other committees. Um, so it's just more efficient if we just have the rule. Okay, if, if the board were to reject this, then what happens? We go back and tell the BOE to make new bylaws or do we have the power just to simply say these are your bylaws? I believe the, the BOE has to recommend for the board's approval the bylaws. Okay. I, I mean, I, I would assume we would just yeah. vote to approve the bylaws as they were given to us. I mean, right. I go back but and We have to go them. back through that process. Is there any implication to not having bylaws in place for the BOE? They've finished their meetings for this term. They'll restart okay. in April. April, okay. Aaron. I was. I. Th I think your question got answered. I was just going to okay. add that the finance committee can just um, add the recommendation to the board that the bylaws be the recommendation from the BOE be amended, however you see fit, and then the board um, determines whether they will accept the BOE's bylaws or not, and the BOE will go back and adopt them. I mean, I, I can certainly make a motion to recommend approval of the BOE's recommended change. I mean, that, at least that'll get it to a vote. Yeah, okay. All right. Um, <clears throat> I move the Finance, Government, Operations, and Economic Development Committee recommend that the Board of Supervisors approve the Board of Ec Equalization Bylaws provided as Attachment 1 to the January 11th, 2024 Finance, Government, Operations, and Economic Development Committee action item and endorse the 2023 Board of Equalization annual report. Second. All right, motion made by Supervisor Upstead. I second it. Discussion on the motion. The only thing I would say is that this, this uh, proposed motion comes to us with a positive recommendation from both the BOE and staff, as I understand it, and I'm comfortable 
um, with the idea that if board members don't want to appoint individuals to multiple um, entities, they don't have to. I do agree with the, um, the, op the opinion or the analysis that the BOE is not really an advisory board or commission to the Board of Supervisors, but an independent, almost judicial um, body, and therefore probably does not need to have the same rules applied to it that would apply to our normal advisory boards and commissions. Okay. Any other discussion of the motion? Uh, I think I laid out my case. Thank you. you. So what I would say, I'm going to vote in favor of this tonight. Um, Supervisor Bruce, if you want to change it for the board meeting, then just bring an amendment there, and we'll let the whole board hash it out, make the decision. It has to go to the whole board anyway. So, uh, And then whatever the outcome is, we'll let you. <laughs> you can be at that meeting, too, and we'll let you know. Uh, but I, I had put this on consent originally because I had the same logic where it's not really an advisory commission of the board and, you know, it only meets one month of the year, so it really shouldn't be held to the same standard. But um, I can also understand the other argument. I don't feel that strongly. All right. All in favor of the motion say aye. Aye. Opposed? Nay. No. Uh, motion carries to one, so that will move to the... Um, Board of Supervisors meeting to be determined, I guess, uh, with a recommendation of approval to one. Okay, thank you very much. All right, item 12, FY 29 to 24, capital needs assessments. So Megan gets to stay. We seem to be missing our presentation. Apologies. Sorry, what's that? We're having. We can't seem to find our presentation right now. Oh. So we will locate it and be right with you. Do we? Let's see. Do we have it in here? Yeah, we have it. Well, worst comes to worst, you can start. I mean, if it's up on everybody's, you can just get it up on your. Okay. So they. iPad. Okay. So if you want to just do it that way. Well, good evening, um, Chair. Can I introduce everybody? Yes, I will. Um, for those who don't know me, I am Nikki Spate, uh, Assistant Director in the Office of Management and Budget. I have with me Sandy Hayes. She is a Capital Budget Manager. Megan Burke, you know her. And Catherine Miller, she is a Capital Budget Analyst in our department as well. Very good. Thanks. 
Um, I am here to present the proposed FY29 through FY2040 capital needs assessment. My presentation this evening will cover the following topics that are on slide two of your presentation. An overview of the various capital planning products developed by staff and the fiscal impact committee. An overview of the CNA, the outputs it produced, and its compliance with the 2019 general plan policies and the staff recommendation. Okay, the Fiscal Impact Committee, or FIC, as I'll refer to it in the presentation, is an advisory body of the Board of Supervisors which reviews and develops recommendations on financial, demographic, and economic factors, as well as growth scenarios which are critical to the development of the county's capital planning documents. The FIC produces guidelines which are long-range forecasts of residential and non-residential development and population, households, and employment. FIC reviewed the guidelines in September of 2022, and the board adopted those in October of 22. And these estimates were used for the Metropolitan Washington COG Round 10 forecasts. So to continue the discussion on capital planning products, the capital intensity factor, or CIF, establishes an estimate of the dollar amount of the capital facility's impact of a new residential unit in Loudoun County by type of residential unit and geographic location. The CIF is used in the evaluation and negotiation of proffers associated with residential rezonings. The CIF is developed by staff and reviewed by FIC. The current update will be presented to the board at the February 14th public hearing. The Capital Improvement Program provides a six-year forecast of the county and government and school divisions, land, facility, and equipment needs with a financing plan to implement each need. The Capital Facility Standards determine the type, acreage, and size of future capital facilities along with triggers based on population and demographic factors. The CFS is typically updated every two to four years, and the board adopted the most recent standards in December of 2022. The capital needs assessment uses the county population forecast and adopted CFS to identify the type and number of capital facilities that will be needed over a 10-year planning period beyond the end of the current CIP timeframe, and the CNA is typically updated every two to four years. The CFS are included in the draft CNA document beginning on PDF page 12 of the attachment to the staff report. Limited adjustments were made to these standards in 2022. In particular, the standards for parks, recreation, and community services were revised to align with the Parks Master Plan and LPAT Plan adopted by the board in June of 21. The standards for a community park and a neighborhood park were replaced by a community parkland standard of 2.75 acres per thousand residents, which aligns with the board's adopted Parks Master Plan. The standard for recreational trails has been revised from 0.4 miles per thousand residents to 1.2 miles per thousand residents to incorporate the standard approved in the board's adopted LPAT plan. This graphic um, shows the relationship between all the capital planning products. As you can see, the FIC guidelines and the CFS are the basis for producing all the other planning documents. The CNA development process included analysis of the adopted CFS to identify the types and quantities of capital facilities needed throughout the CNA period. The analysis factored in county population projections based on the COG 10.0 forecasts. 
Populations in the planning sub-areas are incorporated for the relevant CFS to determine anticipated facility placement in addition to the year of the need. Since the CNA identifies facility needs based on the CFS, developers are able to proffer cash or improvements for such facilities, and staff has a document to support proffer negotiations. The CNA helps determine what projects should be considered for funding in the CIP. Projects identified in the CNA are generally considered first for inclusion in the CIP, subject to funding and land availability. However, projects do not have to first appear in the CNA in order to be funded in the CIP. The major components of the CNA are population forecasts, particularly in the 10 planning sub-areas, CFS and department master service plans, as well as existing and planned facilities. Chapter six of the 2019 general plan discusses fiscal management and public infrastructure and outlines the county's integrated approach to land use and fiscal planning. Most CNA projects have been placed into specific planning sub-areas and other projects are considered countywide, consistent with the location, character, and extent of the 2019 general plan. In addition, the 2019 plan emphasizes the development of agency service plans and the adoption of capital facility standards as the mechanism to guide the county's capital facility development. County staff verified the capital facilities triggered within the CNA are an accurate portrayal of the need identified in the corresponding department service plans where applicable. As such, it is expected that further updates to the CFS will be made in the future and would also consider other factors and triggers that are not solely population-based. In terms of understanding the CNA output or triggers, these are determined by population forecasts, if applicable, and the capital facility standards. This is also referred to in the CNA document as the raw need for facilities that does not include existing and planned facilities. The CNA summary is the result of applying the CNA output or triggers along with the existing and planned facilities. The CNA first analyzes what facilities are triggered and then incorporates the existing operational facilities and facilities that are planned to be built through the end of the CIP period, which is FY28. This is referred to the pre-CNA need. The triggers identified in FY29 through FY2040 are referred to as the CNA need and are evaluated against department master plans and adjusted if necessary. On the following slides, I will walk you through how the data comes together for the calculation of the CNA output and CNA summary using a fire station in the east as an example. And I'm, I apologize if this slide is difficult to read. Uh, the CFS included, is included for each facility, so at the top of this page, the capital facility standard for a fire station in the east is included. The following table below it are the population estimates for the eastern planning sub-areas beginning in FY28, carrying through, um, which is the final year of the CIP, carrying through 2040, which is the CNA period. The final table on this page is the raw need output, which is simply the math of the facility standard and the population estimates that gives the number of facilities that should be triggered based on that standard in the population. So using the Ashburn district as an example, as it's highlighted on that page, the 2028 population reflects that we would need five stations in Ashburn by 28. And then each year, increments of a facility are triggered until we reach 2034, in which the next facility is triggered, where we cross the next whole number, showing six facilities. 
The same is true for Sterling, where a facility, one facility is called for through 28, and the next facility is triggered in 2039. So, sorry, is this saying total number of facilities or additional facilities? This is total number of facilities. And just to clarify, you said district, but it's planning sub-area, Planning right? sub-area, yes. The following tables summarize the results of the CNA output overlaying the existing and planned facilities. A summary of the years and locations in which facilities are triggered during the CNA period is provided. Then the needs are shown by pre-CNA need, 2028, the CNA period need, and then the total need by 2040. So looking at the pre-CNA need table, we show what the CFS triggered as we saw on the prior uh, page, which was again looking at Ashburn, the trigger of five facilities, then incorporating the existing four facilities, and that there are no facilities planned in the CIP through 28, the net need is one facility. Crossing over to the CNA need table, this shows the incremental needs of facilities that are triggered during the CNA period, and then that final column, the pre-CNA need plus the CNA need, shows that we would need two facilities in the Ashburn um, planning sub area through 2040. So that represents the one facility needed at the end of the CNA period, plus the additional triggers during the CNA period. The tables, these tables are reflected in the summary standard by standard section of the CNA document. The standards that are not driven by population are more straightforward table that just um, indicates the total number of facilities needed, the number that are existing and planned, and then the remaining number to build. Based on the long-range forecast of population, staff has anticipated for a number of years that the rate of growth would slow, as would the growth of new facilities needed to be built. The outputs of the CNA are consistent with this expectation. And finally, staff's recommendation is that the Finance Committee recommend that the Board of Supervisors adopt the proposed CNA. We can take any questions. Okay, thank you. And just to kind of level set, should the board wish to change an element of the CNA, is there a process by which we can do that? Or is this only coming to us on our only options to approve it? So the CNA is based on our population forecasts, which I'm not sure that's where you're interested in changing the output, but it's also based on the capital facility standards that we have. We'll be updating those because it's been two years during calendar year 2024, that would be our recommendation that we focus on the facility standards themselves. Um, but if you have a specific yeah, CNA I think output. And I both, both do, and I'm gonna okay. let her kind of dive into it in sure. a minute. But I'm just trying to level set sort of what a process would be and what leeway we have to actually influence it. Sure, we like to call this draft of the CNA really we did the math behind the triggers and the population forecast but we're happy to take additional questions about programmatic and department operations back to the okay. departments to and I should discuss. note as well we have the chairman of the fiscal impact committee that has joined us this evening so if you feel the need to jump in here feel free um, okay did you want to start Supervisor Brisbane sure um, so uh, thank you thank you for this it, it did shed some light on how we do these things. Um, I, I've been struggling with um, how the CNA um, uses population to trigger and then sometimes doesn't. 
Um, I really had uh, some questions about this when we did the master plan for Parks and Rec. Specifically, um, you may recall my questions about recreation centers and why we are not triggering recreation centers by population. Um, so for example, we say we need six recreation centers in Loudoun County. We have two already built, two in process, and two that are needed without any recommendation as to where they might go geographically, either by planning area population or by population in general. So I, I do have a, a number of questions. And my first top line question is, um, do we have a need to um, readjust our lines for planning areas? And the reason I ask that is basically goes back to the example that you just showed us, and that is that the Ashburn planning area has, or will have, has now, I believe, or will in 28 have 140,000 residents, whereas this, the Potomac planning area will have like 47,000 residents. So to me, that just seems awkward. Um, and I noticed it when I was looking at, um, you know, the, the triggers for Ashburn needed like four, I can't remember what it was. And I was like, wow, why does Ashburn need four XYZ? Oh, I see the Ashburn subplanning area has 140,000 people in it. Conversely, I was looking at some triggers or some things that were already built in, um, I think it's Route 7 West planning area. And for example, they have something like 12 already mental health beds or something like that, where some areas don't have nearly enough, they're way over. And they were way over on a couple other things too. So I just started questioning like, why is this happening? Why? And I think Route 7 West also has double the number of community centers or something like that. And so I was just like, why is this happening if we're really analyzing popu where, what is needed by population? Um, so I'll just start there. <laughs> if you wanna respond to, to any of that, I guess the first question is what, do we need to readjust and um, why are we not using population for some of the things? Sure, so um, to take your specific recreation center question, I think that's a valid question that I don't know if the Fiscal Impact Committee and the Parks and Recreation Community Services Department have discussed recently. So in the next iteration of the capital facility standards, I think that would be a worthwhile discussion to have with FIC and the department. Um, but that has been the standard. It's a countywide standard, and that's what has been at the recommendation of the department. But we can take that back to Fiscal Impact Committee and the department and work through that during 2024 when we update the standards, if that would be Right, but helpful. this document lives till 2040. I mean, so, the CNA we refer back to over and over again, and we're about to approve something that will rule the county from 2029 to 2040. So that's why. I so the CNA is supposed to be updated every four years. It has not been over the last eight years. So the intent is not for the CNA to last until 2040. It's intended to be a snapshot over the next four years as we go through an update of the capital facility standards. We re forecast the county's population. It's intended to be an iterative process. Mm -hmm. Over the last eight years, it has not been. I see. I um, so, um, so I guess, if I, and I'll, I'll stop here, but the, the things that I identified were um, the community centers, I believe it was community centers, it was recreation centers. Um, I'm just trying to get to the parks and rec uh, pages here. Uh, yeah, there's the recreation centers. There was also an issue for me with um, regional parks. I think it says we should have eight regional parks, but there's no population or 
planning area distinction as to where those might go. The same with, um, I think it's acreage of parks that we should have across the county and the acreage, it just says we should have this many, I think it's point, they want 0.6 acres per capita, I believe it was, but it doesn't, there's no definition where it should go by population or by planning area. So in other words, we could have it all clumped in one area of the county and not accessible by any other people in the county, if that makes sense. I understand your questions, but yes, the, some of these standards, I do agree, are countywide standards. They are not planning sub-area specific, and that has been the standard that we've presented and by the department's recommendation. If that's something that the Finance Committee wants, the Fiscal Impact Committee, to go back and be more specific with standards and be more planning sub-area specific, I think that's a topic of discussion that I would imagine the Fiscal Impact Committee would be happy to have during the next iteration of the facility standards. So let me jump in a little bit on this. So I think part of, part of the issue may be what was adopted in the Capital Facility Standards by the board um, and by eliminating neighborhood and community park standard and then creating just a general parkland standard, I don't think I realized we were, because community parks and neighborhood parks, I believe were planning sub-area specific because I remember having lots of discussions about a deficit of those things that we had in the Dulles planning sub-area. By moving to this community parkland standard, it's all encompassing throughout the county. So if we acquire 10 acres of land in Western Loudoun someplace, all of a sudden that is you know, meeting our overall need and we no longer are looking to try to acquire 10 acres for a neighborhood park or a community park in a different planning sub-area, even though there may be a need there. It seems like we decoupled geography completely from this. And maybe I'm wrong, maybe we didn't, but... Um, so this, the facility standards, the capital needs assessment in a have to work in concert with also departmental master plans. So the parks and recreation master plan that you adopted a few years ago also intended for those standards to be more countywide as land is getting more scarce and population centers are shifting. Um, so that was the intent and recommendation well, the impact of the recommendations in the master plan was to be more. So we'd have to go back that. to the PRCS master plan if we really wanted to tweak that. Is there a way to try to bring back into the fold at least some consideration of of? Supervisor was saying population. I think population and geography kind of work together, but some analysis of where there are gaps in these types of facilities that we're talking about. I'm using parks as an example, but you know, there are others. I mean, we do that obviously when it comes to fire stations, we just were talking about that, but how would we get that back into the conversation? Could we at least ask Fick to, to take a look at that? So, uh, Mr. so I think what you're seeing is the tail end of a process, right? So yeah. kind of what you're describing is what does occur between the departments and the fiscal impact committee during the process. So in this case, a lot of this data was developed three years ago using oh, yes, over or the last four years ago in some mm -hmm. cases. So, you know, this specific cycle was 
I think, adversely impacted a little bit by COVID and what we were able to do in a more timely sense. However, as Ms. Burke has indicated, the intent or what we're, what the board typically charges us with is updating these standards every two years. And so the main purpose of them, well, one purpose of them is to help drive projects that come into the CIP and help the staff work with the board to determine what facilities should come into the six-year plan. That's one of the purposes. And I think that's the one that, that at least if I'm interpreting the, the committee's comments correctly, is kind of what you're asking about. We also remember the other purpose of this, which is one of the drivers of it, is this is also the basis of our proffer system, right? So when we talk about capital facilities uh, contributions, those capital facilities contributions are the basis of this is what you have in front of you. So yeah, then what happens, like you saw it last night, is somebody comes in, they want to build something that's either oversized for their, their facility or it's something that uh, doesn't fit directly to CNA, and so they want to go ahead and build it, and then they want, they want you to give them a credit off those contributions. But that, this is the basis of that. So right. the challenge we have right now, which is why I think we're recommending a, adoption or recommending to the board to adopt it, is our current proffer numbers are from 2015. And so these numbers are significantly better in terms of supporting that process because they, if you, you know, the basis of those proffers are to offset or mitigate mitigate the pressures or the additional infrastructure that's required due to additional density that isn't by right, right? So that's kind of the focus and what this does. Uh, we can unravel it, but I think what we're going to do is start the process all over again this year. Yeah. I, and so I think... Well, that's uh, why I'm think, saying instead of unraveling it, yeah. is it something that we can direct that there be some yeah. focus on? What I would recommend is that we go ahead and, and which I think we would really like to do mm -hmm. is come and meet with each of the board members directly and do a briefing and talk about the process and then bring it back to finance if that's okay but uh, just because you know we're talking about a process that was developed circa 2003 probably and then revamped by us in 2019 and so you know i think it's probably a good idea for us to sit with each one of you and then okay get your thoughts and then come back with a revised process however right now we've got Capital facility. I mean, we got a CNA yeah. that's like really outmoded, so we probably our recommendation would be that you go ahead and adopt this, and then we'll start the process over. Okay. So the other question I was going to ask was this: in some cases, flows into a land acquisition discussion, mm -hmm. um, and at least in this past past term, the way that we started acquiring land was more by almost board initiative, more than staff. Um, when we had these sort of geographic planning areas associated with everything, or geographic boundaries, I felt that there was more of a staff effort to identify things within, and then that's kind of shifted because if a board member, you know, sees something and you know, or comes in and we go through a process, um, so, and it's sort of ad hoc. Um, so, do we also need to have a discussion about land acquisition in general? I mean, we're obviously running out of land. Um, it just seems like our approach right now is not particularly strategic. Yeah, so I, I, the way I would answer that is, well, the short answer to that is yes, okay? I think, I think what, what we can do is 
come and have that conversation. So what we have been doing the last few years is we will meet with uh, each board member, or we offer to each with, meet with each board member in kind of that August, September timeframe to understand from you what your priorities are for the, ne for the next year's capital plan. Mm -hmm. I think what Ms. Burke and, and I can do is be a little more deliberate about how, that, how that, those meetings are, are guided or what's on the agenda there. Uh, to talk more specifically about what's going on in your district, what projects are coming up in your district, and then also get an idea of what your interests are because to the extent that those match up with identified projects within the CIP or a projects that we are seeing coming up through this, the capital needs assessment, we can then talk to each office specifically about land that you may want uh, us to be considering or looking out for from the perspective of, of acquisition and then bring those back to the full board. Okay. Um, and then last thing, and then open it back up to others. Um, the, we are kind of in a budget development discussion as well tonight, not on this item specifically. However, it did lead me to wonder, as a budget development item, should we be looking to try to potentially increase our land acquisition side in the CIP at this stage because we know we're going to have issues with land acquisition or, you know, as opposed to just facilities? So we have, or, or, or let me rephrase that, not just as an item, as an overall pot of money, but, but should we be looking to try to acquire land in the CIP projects, even the ones that go out of ways earlier, because that becomes more difficult to do? Yes, and so I think in a roundabout way, that's what I was just saying. Right, so we would talk with each of you in that August, okay. September timeframe, walk through the projects in, that are in your district, or maybe you have some some projects that are near a border for your district or something that would serve your district, and then uh, look at what's in the CIP, look at what's in the capital needs assessment or what could potentially be triggered in the CNA, uh, look at what interest you have, and then Ms. Burke and I and uh, Ms. McClellan would kind of put all that together and then bring something to the board that talks about land acquisition. So I think that's what you were saying. I was just kind of saying in a Yeah, I, I, but I think I'm more mean programmatic, like as a, as a sort of strategy within how we're allocating funding Correct. in the CIP. So in order to do Accelerating land acquisition. So in order to do that, yeah. the process starts in July. And then what we do is we come in that August, September timeframe because that's when we know what the big parts or pieces of the budget need to be. And then we start narrowing right. down. So yeah. uh, that is the timeframe in that August, September timeframe where we have the most flexibility with respect to what's going into the next year's budget, right? right. Because like right now today, January 11th, your budget's set. So unless you're, unless you're going to, yeah. you know, increase the tax rate by 10 or 20 cents and or you're going to defund large components of the of the budget, your budget's already set. Right. So in order to have that influence on looking at increasing land acquisition or targeting land acquisition, that discussion is really a discussion in the fall, which is why we come to the finance committee in the fall with several items that are focused on just 
what do you want to see in your upcoming budget? That's why we come and meet with you to understand with each board member what is important to you in your district so that we can bring all those pieces together. Right. Okay. Supervisor Bristol. Yes, thank you. I, I feel like we got a little bit in the weeds um, on that one. Uh, <laughs> I think I understand what you're saying, uh, Mr. Hemstreet. Um, I guess I'm a little bit frustrated because I started having this CNA conversation when we initially started talking about the Western Loudoun Recreation Center, probably in 20 or 21. And then we had the conversation again when the Parks and Rec Master Plan came through, and I said at the time, why are we not locating facilities based on population? Is there not a national standard for things like parks and recreation centers and those sorts of things? And parks and rec, as I recall, didn't, or the consultant didn't have a really good answer. So I guess I'm not so much satisfied with the idea that we would go back to parks and rec for an answer, if that makes sense. Um, I can understand maybe going to thick, but in some ways, I, I wasn't satisfied with the park and rec answer, and in some ways, the park and rec, that's sort of like the tail wagging the dog. As much as respect I have for parks and rec, shouldn't we be going a little bit more from the ground where it's population and or what's needed in a planning area rather than I mean, I know they look at some of those things. So I guess my, my bottom line question is, do we need to tweak the formulas that we're using in this product? If so, how do we do that? How do we tweak the formulas that are used in this product? Because again, for example, teen centers, one facility for 10,000, one facility per 10,000 people aged 12 to 14. But then it says there's basically no teen centers triggered. And it, does, and it doesn't even say that, I, that, that we have a teen center at the Cascades Library. And then if you, if you were to match together Sterling and, uh, and Potomac, or you match together Ashburn and Dulles, that would trigger one and a half teen centers. So why, again, that's a population thing. We, have a, we surely have enough population where Dulles and Ashburn meet, or Dulles and Broad Run meet, to trigger teen centers. We've been talking about teen centers on this dais so, for I don't know how long. <laughs> like, so I think one answer is, again, and I'm gonna, I'll reiterate it, what you're seeing is the end product of a process that has been ongoing with several check-ins with the board over a three or four year period. So one of the check-ins was when we came with the parks master plan, the board did give us direction on how to utilize the information of what was in that plan. So, and, and I, I remember pieces of the conversation, it's been a few years, so I don't remember the entire conversation, but I, I do recall your comments. However, what we moved forward with was what the board directed us to move forward with. So. So I think there's a couple things as, that's part of this discussion. One thing is I do think we would probably benefit from having an offline discussion yeah, with I you, agree, I agree. Uh, Madam Vice Chair, just because I think we could get a little more into the weeds of the discussion. Uh, you know, formulas are math, 
So what you're seeing in terms of the mathematical output is intended again to be used as part of the land development process to calculate the mitigation to additional density, right? So that's how the math works, yeah. and that's the purpose of the tool. So what we have to go back to, which is what I'm interpreting or what I'm hearing, is how do the standards get developed, right? And so part of that and what the purpose of the Parks Master Plan was was to come to finance and the board and say, okay, what do you want to see? How many parks do you want to see? How many neighborhood parks do you want to see? And the department is there to facilitate that dialogue, right? So once we have that input from the board, what we then do is we break it down into a mathematical formula that can then be used to support our land development process. And if we, and then also to inform us as to when we should add things into the CIP. We can also give you a direct briefing on teen centers or we can bring that back to the finance committee but the county has a long history on teen centers. We have made several recommendations as staff over the years about the development of teen centers, and the board has traditionally told us no. <laughs> so I, we can rehash that, but, <laughs> so, but we can do that briefing, but I okay. think if it's okay. okay with you, what I'd like to do Thanks. is for Ms. Burke and I to have a, have a briefing with you offline. It, and it doesn't, if I might ask one more question to staff, it, it's not really going to create any issues if we keep this in committee like timing issues for the budget or anything like that well Just for the proffers the issue is everything we're doing is working off of something from 2015 so it's grossly out of date yeah again and i will remind you this is an output of a process that has taken three to four years to put together as Ms. burke has said we are getting ready to initiate in 2024 the update to this this cna and so if you're going to keep it in committee or not want to afford it, then what I would say is to trash this, have us start over again, and just go with our FY24 process because that's where you are in the process. But my recommendation would be to you to adopt this so that at least we have something that's more current than 2015. All right. Other comments or questions? That was good. I mean, I know that was kind of weedy and difficult, but that was still – I mean, we need to have the discussion. So um, – all right, I will go ahead then to move us along, move the Finance, Government, Operations, Economic Development Committee, recommend the Board of Supervisors adopt the FY29 to FY2040 capital needs assessment as shown in attachment one to the January 11, 2024 Finance, Government, Operations, and Economic Development Committee action item. Seconded by Supervisor Umstead. Um, so yeah, I, I think there are some issues here. Um, for myself, I didn't realize that rem that an acreage standard for parks would remove a geographic association, basically, which is what appears to have happened at some point in the process. And I just kind of lost track of that. So I do would like to go back and have a discussion about that, but I don't want to hold up adoption of this for the reasons that the county administrator stated, because it's not going to gain anything you know, to do that. We're just going to be working off of old numbers still, and we do have a lot of land development stuff coming. Um, so. If I want to do that, is it enough for me just to say that, that I want to have that discussion? Okay. Yes. Um, otherwise, um, you know, there's a lot of components to this. Um, updated, updated numbers that are more realistic about what it costs for us are, are good and better. Um, and then I think that leads to a discussion on land acquisition, which we kind of had a little bit, but 
we'll have more, and I think we'll just need to make sure to have periodic check-ins and be very intentional with the discussion that board members are having during budget development, particularly CIP development. Um, and, you know, but I, I do think there's some merit to, in addition to just talking to individual board members about what they want in their districts, to more broaden that to as a strategy across the CIP, should we be trying to acquire land more strategically or more aggressively for the projects that are funded in the six-year CIP um, so that we don't end up in situations like we have with a lot of these road projects, you know, for instance, where we're at the last minute, we're actually under construction right now on one road project, we don't know about the land yet. And so, you know, we're completely getting held up and bent over on that, quite frankly. So let's try to, you know, be more strategic about that discussion. So that, that's kind of also what I meant. But okay, any other discussions on the motion? <laughs> Vice Chair Brisbane. Just <laughs> let's just arrange a, a time to talk. I guess uh, we we should let this go to the full board. Thank you. Okay, all in favor of the motion, say aye. 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 Anyone opposed? Motion carries three zero two. Be forwarded to the board of supervisors. And with that, I think we're ready for a dinner break.
Okay, we are continuing our meeting with item 15, which is American Rescue Plan Update Recommendations Child Care Fee Reduction Nonprofit Grant Program. Good evening. Good evening, Sharon Letourneau and the rest of the committee members. Uh, this committee item supports the county's efforts to provide child care fee reduction to residents that do not qualify for child care subsidy through Virginia's Department of Education program and whose income is at or below 80% area medium income. The staff recommends a $1 million allocation to the Northern Virginia Family Service to administer the grant for child care needs. In October 2023, the county released a request for applications and received one application with a request of $1 million. The application was still reviewed, excuse me, received, reviewed, and scored by a review panel with human service and financial expertise. Applicants were evaluated on criteria for contributions to community, vetting of targeted populations for community services, partnerships within county, administrative resources to implement programs, and internal controls and record keeping. Staff has prepared a presentation for your review and questions, or we can take questions now at this time. Thank you. Okay, questions from members of the committee? Supervisor Brisbane. Thank you. Um, Sorry, you went too fast. I still have a mint in my mouth. <laughs> um, just to confirm, there's still the one million to respond to the needs assessment, correct? That is correct. Okay, awesome. Um, do you have any idea about how long this um, million will last? Unfortunately, we can't gauge the need at this time, but we are um, going to be working with Northern Virginia Family Service to make sure that we have a trend analysis um, at the same time as they're administering the program so that we know about, um, you know, a, a prediction of when it could sunset. Okay. And then, um, <clears throat> excuse me, it's, I, I think if I recall correctly, it could be a 50% reduction in child yes, care fees. So that's correct. there may be people who have looked into child care so they can go back to work and decided, well, I can't afford that. And so they may not be in the market for childcare. Will there be an element of um, either the providers letting folks know or potential new clients know, new customers know, or will Northern Virginia Family Services do that? How, how will that work? I think it will be a combination. Um, the way the application and um, request for applications was written is that Northern Virginia Family Service would conduct outreach to private child care providers mm -hmm. um, and provide them with materials for outreach to families and the community oh, okay. area. Okay. Yes. Okay. Fantastic. Um, I think those were, those were, uh, oh, what, and the ages will be, oh, actually, is it going to be after school care and before school care, or will it just be like your standard age five and under full day 
So um, there are a couple of options. We are looking at um, below kindergarten. So they okay. are not yet enrolled in kindergarten. And um, the needs assessment that you referenced earlier will have some before and after school care questions um, so that we can gauge the need better at that time. But it was our understanding from the data that really focusing under kindergarten um, would give the, the highest impact. Okay. Okay. Well, great. I can't wait to see the results and I really appreciate all the hard work that's gone into this. I know that, you know, it's been a little bit of a rocky road and I'll really look forward to the, um, the needs assessment coming through and giving us more guidance and, um, you know, hopefully this will last a while and then we can work on making sure that we continue the, the uh, fee reduction. Thank you. So, um, <coughs> Below 80% AMI is getting state assistance? So um, at or below 85% state median income gets- 85%. Yes, gets um, child care assistance through the state subsidy program. And so what we are attempting to do is fill the gap between 80% AMI of Loudoun's local median income and that 85% state median income. So that is the Seems supplement. Seems very specific. Yes. Like this is a- do we have any idea how big just the overall pool of people is out there that fit in that definition? Uh, because we're looking at census data, uh, there aren't those specific numbers. So okay. we're kind of flying blind in that. Okay. Um, and there was only one bidder. That's correct. Any, any um, thoughts as to why that might be? Um, the hypothesis that that staff would state is that really it's a very unique application that has very specific guidance on blending and braiding of funding of administration and there are very few qualified applicants for that um, and it would take a large amount of documentation and capacity to be able to administer okay well i'll support this using arpa money um I don't know if it came down to the point where it became a county-funded project only because there are, I think, other ways where the county could do this through our own services, um, and we have been doing it, and I'm not convinced how successful this is going to be because it is so narrow. Um, but we have the ARPA money, um, and talking to the county administrator, there really hasn't been a lot of other identified needs for it, so we can give this a shot and see. It works. Would you like to make the motion? Um, I, I, I would. Thank you. Um, I, I, I bet the needs assessment will, sh will show us some identified needs. Uh, well, it's not the same. We'll talk on that. <laughs> Hang on. I'm sorry. I wasn't. I wasn't ready for it. Sorry. Um, well, I figured you might want to make this. I do want to make yeah. the motion. Yes. I apologize. I, okay. I, I didn't yeah. even think about it. I really appreciate it. You're. You are very kind. Um, I found it. Oh, oh, okay. Thank you. <laughs> I move that the Finance, Government, Operations, and Economic Development Committee recommend that the Board of Supervisors approve one million in grant award funds to Northern Virginia Family Service Family Services to administer the ARPA Child Care Fee Reduction Grant to support Loudoun County residents who do not qualify for child care subsidy through Virginia's Department of Education Programming and whose income is at or below eighty percent. Loudoun County area median income. Thank you. All right, motion is made and seconded. Thank you. Um, Thank you. I, I'm good. 
<laughs> we can just vote. <laughs> okay. No further discussion. All in favor say aye. Aye. Anyone opposed? No. No one's opposed. The motion carries 302. Thank you. All right. Moving on to item 16 <clears throat> fare free local fixed bus and paratransit recommendations. Um, I will note as staff is coming up, I'm going to give them a little bit more of a hard time on this one because we are literally taking up an item that the board never directed or asked for. The actual genesis of this was on the student uh, uh, free uh, service. And so um, they will explain, or I'm sure you've read why they had some difficulty with that and it kind of morphed into a larger discussion. Um, I don't think the discussion is quite ready for action or prime time yet, but please. Mr. Brown, are you kicking this off? Yes, sir. Thank you, right. Committee Chair Letourneau, uh, Madam Vice Chair, Supervisor Armstead. Thank you for the opportunity uh, for us to present this. This evening, uh, Supervisor Armstead, or Supervisor Letourneau, you are correct. This uh, evolved from a 2021 BMI by Vice Chair Briskman uh, to attempt to address free fares for students. Um, that was investigated by staff and they ran into a number of logistical challenges uh, between the school and the concept and so it stalled. Um, one of the concepts that did uh, bubble up that does address free fares is the, this issue of free fares universally across the local uh, system and across the, uh, the paratransit system as well. So. Uh, this was an opportunity for us to bring back to uh, the committee and the board for their consideration as an option to address that BMI, but also to look at maybe what other individuals or other organizations across the country are doing. So before I go any further, I would like to introduce the team. Um, so to my far right is uh, Mr. Jamie Cook. He is our new deputy director for uh, transit, fleet, and facility operations. Uh, as part of our onboarding process in general services, they have to be able to run the PowerPoint. And so we will see how this turns out tonight. Uh, I told Ernie not to put me in front of the... She has an exemption from that, so she's, she has a waiver. And you all know uh, Ms. Penny Newquist, our Assistant Director for Transit and Commuter Services. And also with me to, to my left is Mr. Alec Moore, who is with uh, SRF Consulting. He is our transit uh, consulting firm, and he's uh, come up here to be with us from North Carolina. So uh, we have a great team here this evening, and if, if we can uh, implore you with a presentation, we would like to do so uh, about the concept of free fare uh, for uh, local fixed route and paratransit recommendations, and then we would open up for any conversation or discussion that the, board, the committee may have. Yes. Um but can you start with a response to the actual BMI? Yes, sir. Thank so you. I will do so. Thank you. Um, it, on, in, the, in the very beginning of this, in the background of the item, uh, it makes reference to back in July 2021, the board directed staff to uh, examine the possibility of a free fare system for, uh, for students using their ID, their student ID cards. Now, we worked with Loudoun County Public Schools, well staff did, uh, that uh, transit was currently, or at that time was with uh, DTCI and has since transferred uh, last spring, transferred over to DGS. So they worked uh, with uh, LCPS on that and they, they, came, they ran into a number of logistical impediments. Uh, primarily the school system does not have a standardized um, uh, 
student ID system. It's basically left up to each individual school to do so. Um, types, whether or not it exists at all. So there was a lot of inconsistency there. And in order to make this work properly with the free fare systems for students that uh, uh, is operated throughout the country, we needed to have a, have a uniform student ID system so that they could present that uh, at, upon entering the bus and it could be verified. Um, so there were also some questions that came up about parental consent because there were some conversations about what if we gave them smart trip cards that they could issue uh, through the school systems and there were concerns expressed about that as well. So that, that solution did not seem to present itself uh, through conversations with county staff and LCPS staff, so it stalled. Uh, we did pick this back up as an outstanding issue uh, uh, back in the spring and the timing was such that we had brought on SRF and we asked them the question, do you have any ideas about free fares for students? Um, and, and the conversation evolved into there, there is a, an emerging um, application of free fares across the, um, the, the system to, uh, you'll see in the presentation, that results in increased ridership uh, and removes any of the equity barriers or particular targeted communities that would get otherwise free uh, or reduced. It just removes those, those equity barriers and it provides uh, for that service unilaterally. So we explored that, we found it to be intriguing and something that we, we thought would be uh, worthy of the board to at least hear about and if, if it was something that the board was interested in pursuing, we would be prepared to do so. Did I, did I get to the BMI, sir? Yeah, I may, we may have some questions on the BMI yes, too, but yes. Yes, sir. Thank you. So if I may introduce uh, again, uh, Mr. Alec Moore. Thank you very much, Ernie, and good evening, uh, Chair Letourneau and members of the committee. My name is Alec Moore. I'm with SRF Consulting Group. Um, I am a transit planner and project manager with the firm, and I'm very pleased to be here with you all tonight. Um, as Ernie mentioned, we are going to run through a brief presentation that we have, and certainly I'll be happy to field what questions I can um, in response and provide responses. But again, this was an outgrowth of the BMI that we were just discussing, um, and a little bit more broader look at what fare-free transit um, could mean for Loudoun County on the fixed route bus system, the local fixed route system, and paratransit services. And I do want to distinguish that we were not asked to look at commuter services. Those would be handled separately. So this would just be for the local fixed route service and for the paratransit service. So next slide, please. So just to give you a flavor of what we're going to be talking about tonight, uh, the first will be to uh, provide a summary of the findings of our research, uh, talk a little bit about our study approach to this particular question. Uh, we'll also dive into some of the rationales that are being used and employed by other transit providers across the country, um, and then talk a little bit about an implementation strategy or approach here in Loudoun County. Uh, we do want to touch on some of those national case studies as well um, and provide you with some background background of how we got there. Um, and then also uh, just at a, the observations is really the high level summary, if you will, and then we'll talk about staff recommendations following that. So in summary, uh, just to kind of catch you all up and give you a flavor of where this is headed, uh, as Ernie mentioned, um, one of the primary findings of a review of fare-free transit is that it has tremendous potential to increase transit ridership. We have seen that in case study after case study across the country. Um, certainly breaking that barrier between having to pay for a service and just simply opening the door and making it more available certainly has led to uh, increased transit ridership across a number of different systems. Uh, 
this all, there are also certainly system and operational efficiencies that go with that. Um, that dives into some of the operating metrics, perhaps a little bit more in detail, like things like on-time performance and some of the other metrics that we use to evaluate transit service um, by, again, eliminating the need for a transaction to happen when someone boards a vehicle, uh, a, whether it's a large bus or a small bus, um, that can re significantly reduce uh, delay, for example, on a, on a system. Um, there are certainly also uh, costs that come with implementing a FAIR program, um, administrative costs and cash handling costs and security costs and so forth. And so by eliminating FAIRs, you also eliminate those administrative costs. Um, and that's a key part we found in some of the research nationally. Um, as Ernie also mentioned, certainly in the recent context in, and of the national dialogue around equity and economic opportunity, uh, a number of systems that have looked at the fare-free route um, have certainly noted the equity implication um, and helped to address the equity uh, disparities perhaps in certain communities they serve. Um, there are also certainly some documented environmental benefits. Um, this really also relates to having fare-free means perhaps um, less reliance on an automobile, uh, which can also reduce the need for parking for some of those things. So there's some aspects of that which are a little uh, more on the environmental side. Um, and then lastly, as a final bullet, decrease, decreases in safety and security incidents. This really relates to when people need to pay a fare and they perhaps may not have that ability. Um, there are certainly documented cases uh, where the operators have been subject to um, physical violence, to um, you know, emotional violence in, the term, in terms of people using profanities or so forth. Um, that kind of, that tension is really released by not having um, a particular fare. Now, one thing I should mention is important is that any time you're considering taking this route of implementing a fare-free service, you want to carefully plan um, for doing that. What we have seen, at least in the national level of research, has been that um, for some programs that have sort of on a snap judgment basis implemented a fare-free program, they haven't necessarily either been ready for the response in terms of what kind of um, ridership increase they might be looking at, um, or it's been a bit simply put chaotic. And so the management of that, it's very important to plan for this kind of uh, process and set, and, and we get into some of that in our implementation slide. So our, a little bit about our study approach again, this emerged from this um, board uh, member initiative uh, that we were asked to take a look at, first starting with students, but then more broadly uh, and more holistically with, uh, within Loudoun County on, in terms of fare-free fixed route, uh, local bus service, and paratransit service. So what we first wanted to do was to, again, understand the national experience with fare-free transit. We wanted to take a look at what agencies have implemented this approach and what have they learned um, from this approach. Again, both the pros and the cons. Our report dives into both of those, uh, the, what we call the benefits and the burdens. And then also discuss the um, primary rationales that are being used to justify this approach. And then the last thing that we wanted to do was to the degree we were able was to test some of the um, scenarios, uh, if you will, using current Loudoun County uh, fare information. So we were able to uh, work with our partners at the county at General Services to gather pertinent data around fare collection and look at what that might mean as far as uh, on a numbers basis, what that might mean in terms of going on a fare-free approach. 
So to dive into the rationale specifically, uh, the one of the primary drivers of this is to improve operational performance, certainly to improve ridership. Um, that is certainly a common goal that is shared across a number of the transit agencies that have implemented fare-free service. Um, but then again, I also mentioned that there is a drive to reduce or eliminate administrative costs to the degree that it's possible. Um, we'll dive into some of those numbers a little bit later, and I hope that you'll understand that. It's a little bit complex, but I'll do my best to describe it succinctly. Um, again, recently we've also heard a lot about enhancing equity uh, as far as access to the system and economic opportunity. Um, people uh, having the ability to um, afford, uh, whether it's food or access to other services without having to also account for a transit fare um, is important. And then lastly, I would say that another uh, common theme or rationale we've seen from several transit providers has been to promote a culture of transit utilization, particularly among younger generations. Um, and we have a case study that we'll dive into that deals specifically with student populations shortly, and that's in Tempe, Arizona. Um, but what's one of the things that's very important when it comes to the rationale for pursuing a fare-free program is that it be tied to the transit operational goals and objectives for the service. And one of the things that we heard loud and clear at the start of this process was a, a real desire to grow transit ridership, particularly among the local fixed route service and then again also the paratransit service as eligible. But, but the focus again was driving transit ridership. So on the, an implementation basis, this is where I mentioned the careful planning that needs to be considered. Um, there are a number of actions that are needed before you would just implement a fare-free approach. And again, what we've tended to see is those systems or agencies that have sort of, if you will, to use the expression, ripped the Band-Aid and just implemented something immediately, it's that that process has struggled because, again, I think that the research suggests that they haven't had sort of a defined program to get to a point of feeling comfortable and, and capable of implementing this kind of approach. There are a number of steps. So again, we've talked a little bit already about defining the rationale and associating it with the goals for the service, but that also includes identifying a sustained funding source to replenish lost fare revenues. Um, we also want to talk about um, a uh, process for scheduling the closure of fare boxes or the removal of fare vending equipment, um, how that works and where that is also stored because there have been instances where um, some agencies have employed a fare-free program but needed to bring back fares. Um, so what do you, you want to make sure that that equipment, if that is the case, is still available and not just discarded. Um, the Title VI analysis, this is an act, actually a Federal Transit Administration requirement. Anytime a transit agency adjusts fares um, on the basis of Title VI of the Civil Rights Act, uh, the agency is required to conduct a equity analysis. Um, that can be an adjustment of fares up or down. Um, generally speaking, um, if you're dropping the fare or reducing it in this case for these services to free, your equity analysis is going to look pretty favorable. <laughs> So uh, last couple of bullets here, um, certainly very important to create a public communication program so that folks understand uh, when the service will become free. You want to make sure that they're aware of that. 
and then also considering other uh, coordination with other services in the region is very important. Um, and then, I, as I mentioned, identifying any contingency uh, plans if needed. Um, that's also very important as well, too. So um, I'm getting about halfway through the presentation right here, just a few more slides, but we wanted to provide you with some case studies, again, of what we're seeing nationally. Um, there are a number of cities and transit authorities um, in larger and smaller municipalities across the country that have implemented a fare-free approach. And I think it's fair for me to pause and simply share with you that the, the overall experience with fare-free transit in the United States is still fairly nascent. There are, however, some communities on this particular list that have been employing this practice in the case of Chapel Hill for over 20 years. Um, but several of these agencies, however, have only recently implemented this approach. And we'll dive into some of the specifics on that here in just a moment. But I did just want to acknowledge that we're still learning about this approach in the industry. Um, so I'm sure there are some good questions to follow. So. Why don't we drive, jump into our first case study? Um, in 2019, late 2019, uh, the city of Kansas City really rocked the transit world by announcing their intent to move to a zero fare transit initiative. Uh, the, the rationale for this was really based on equity and accessibility. This was uh, an initiative that had been really predominantly driven and championed by the executive director, the general manager of KCATA at the time. Um, the approach was to be phased. It would start with a certain number of routes and then it would climb eventually to a uh, system-wide fare-free program. Um, the results of this have actually been very interesting and Kansas City provides us perhaps a unique perspective in that um, there's the University of Missouri at Kansas City uh, in town. So there's some other research arms that have certainly had their, op their ability to kind of look into the data more specifically. And what some, uh, some of the initial results have been that there are a number of regular bus riders who report using transit much more frequently. Maybe they were making one trip or two on transit a day. Now they're making two or three, maybe even more trips using transit each day. Um, there were more trips uh, in documented research for food, for healthcare services, um, as well as access to jobs. Um, and then one of the findings that I find most interesting has been that spending on goods and services um, is potentially generating more in gross domestic product in the Kansas City region than when fares were collected, meaning that people are spending money than they would have previously on transit fares. They're actually spending it on goods and services, which is in turn creating more economic opportunity um, in the greater Kansas City region. And then lastly, uh, this was also an interesting finding from, I believe it was the Urban League of Kansas City, um, but the citizens felt that their government was listening to them and responding to their needs um, when they implemented this initiative. So I think that was a very positive and, and encouraging um, uh, finding from the research. The next case study comes to us from Missoula, Montana, um, actually a city that I have also worked in. And uh, Missoula implemented their fare-free program in 2015. Um, the idea here was to improve uh, operational performance and to reduce costs for the agency. Um, this was uh, one of those case studies where they implemented the program immediately. Um, and 
it has subsequently um, been approved by voters about, I want to say, 2016, 2017. Um, voters, I, I could be a little wrong on my dates there, but voters have since approved the program to continue um, as fare-free for the overall system um, in the time that, since it was initially announced and, and implemented. Um, ridership in the first year increased um, almost 70%, actually, excuse me, that's between 2015 and 2018, a 70% increase in ridership following fare-free implementation. Um, they established uh, partnerships with local businesses to help recoup the cost of what fares were lost, or fare revenues were lost. And again, I mentioned already that voters have since approved um, moving forward from a demonstration project into an actual policy and operating policy of the agency. Um, last two case studies I believe we have. Um, one comes to us from Olympia, Washington. Um, this actually, I was living in the uh, Tacoma area when this initiative was passed, but back in 2019 there was a voter uh, referendum uh, for transportation in the city of Olympia. Uh, this is an uh, agency called Inner City Transit that would start a fare-free program beginning in 2020. Um, the idea behind this was to reduce agency costs. Um, one of the challenges that they were having was they had aging fare vending equipment and they were actually finding it very difficult to replace that fare vending equipment. In fact, they had staff looking on eBay to find parts um, because the, the fare vending equipment was so old. Um, so they said, you know, we're really spending a lot of time on this program, implementing this fare. What are we really getting out of it? And they decided to pursue this initiative to make it fare free. So as it shows in the results, a voter approved local tax initiative that funded transit investments, including new vehicles and service expansions, as well as fare free transit, um, the aging of fare equipment and a desire for more technology based um, fare payment um, res was resulting in really significant costs to the agency. And um, I think again, the last bullet there, after one month of the fare, free, fare free program, ridership increased by over 20% from the previous year's timeframe. Oh, we do have one more and that's from Corvallis, Oregon. This is actually one of the older examples of fare free in the United States. It dates back to 2011. Um, the rationale here was to uh, reduce costs, improve equity and improve overall performance. Um, this was an initiative that was implemented immediately, and as the, the result bullets suggest, ridership increased um, by nearly 38% in the first year of the program. Um, from a transit operations, uh, the, the money for this actually for covering the lost fare revenue came from a transit operations fee, which was a monthly surcharge um, paid by Corvallis residents, um, and it also helped fund expansion of the overall system. And then finally, as our final case study for this evening, um, Tempe, Arizona. Um, back in 1996, the city of Tempe uh, advanced a transit uh, tax initiative. Um, this included route extensions and expansions of transit service, but also a fare-free for youth travel program. Um, this was a focused implementation for fare free, again, targeting those age, age ranges between 6 and 18. Um, it is still in operation today and some very interesting findings and data that's in our report uh, from this. But this has, again, emerged from a half-cent sales tax to fund operations and this particular program. Um, 
Certainly the strongest utilization cohort is the 14 to 18 year old range. And again, this also speaks to that notion of building a culture of transit utilization. Uh, that was one of the intended goals um, of the program. Uh, the strongest in terms of the returns on this, um, between 20, uh, 2009 and 2012, there were over 600,000 trips. Um, as you might expect with any community that sees um, you know, younger populations, there will be a rise and then there will be a fall as far as those populations becoming older, becoming adults, and either aging out of a program or moving on in their lives. Um, but it has, the data has been observed that um, the use of this program is trending upward again at this point. So again, just to round out the presentation, uh, some general observations. In every case that we were able to find, fare-free transit resulted in significant ridership increases. Ridership gains were, com uh, were the result, again, of comparing, uh, comparing the previous year when fares were enforced to when they were not. Um, growth in ridership um, better positioned a number of these agencies actually for discretionary grants from the FTA. Um, that is not the only criterion, ridership is not the only criterion for a number of discretionary grants, but it is certainly a key criterion. So being able to demonstrate to the FTA a growth in ridership is certainly advantageous from that perspective. Um, we've talked a fair bit already about administrative cost reductions. Um, nationally, fair uh, revenues constitute about 10 to 20 percent of agency-wide revenues. This comes from the Transit Cooperative Research Program. Uh, but juxtapose that against the fact that um, the same research uh, is suggesting that fare collection and enforcement represents about 6 percent of total fare box revenues. So. So thinking about it in the case of Loudoun County, if right now fares are, I believe, $1 um, for service, you know, from an overall collection standpoint, if that were to be, and I don't have the number in front of me, but if that were to be closer to that 10% mark, if fare enforcement and recovery is costing 6% of that, you are still gaining, but not nearly as much. So um, it's, the, the math there is a little bit tricky. Again, this comes from uh, national observations, um, again, published by Transit Cooperative Research Program. Um, and then lastly, um, identifying a sustained funding source will be very important um, moving forward to, again, replenish any lost fare revenues. Um, uh, that's, again, been looked at uh, in the case of, I can tell you that in the case of Chapel Hill, uh, they negotiated agreements um, with Obviously, in Chapel Hill, North Carolina, you have a large inst uh, academic institution with a number of transit-dependent riders at the University of North Carolina, but the local transit agency negotiated agreements, for example, with that um, with the university to uh, help cover some of those costs. Um, so that's one avenue that could be where it's a um, one entity, governmental entity, working with uh, another public entity as well. So there's a number of ways that that combination could play out. Um, so I guess I'll cover this and then we'll open it up to questions, but um, the recommendations from our analysis would be that we suggest um, a fare-free transit for local bus and paratransit services in Loudoun County could be very feasible. Um, fares would again continue as we were expressed to us when we started this effort, fares would continue on the commuter bus services. They would, this would only be for local bus and for paratransit service. Um, we have also talked with staff that this might be looked at from a three-year period, for example, a, a period of time to allow for recurring public or periodic evaluations. Um, this would al also allow for adjustments. 
In the public transit world, we like to specify a two to three year time frame anytime we're implementing service changes or, or in this case, a fare adjustment because we want to allow ridership to normalize a bit. Um, we would anticipate, as we've seen elsewhere, that a, a fare-free program for local service and for paratransit service might mean an increase in ridership. This would, again, a periodic kind of evaluation basis would allow that ridership to normalize and then allow staff to also see what other adjustments might be needed um, to either the fare program or, or the service um, that is operated and implemented. Um, and then that would also evaluate the long-term stability and the funding streams um, that we're replenishing the lost fare revenues. Um, again, also important to, we wanna make sure there's a feedback loop for the community uh, as part of that. And again, that would also give you the opportunity, as I've mentioned, to examine the benefits and the burdens. And I thank you for the opportunity to provide this presentation. I'll hand it back to Ernie. So thank you, Alex. So I, I don't think I can add anything to that. And uh, we stand ready to answer any questions you may have. Okay, um, so I am concerned about how we went from zero to 100 on this. Thank you so much for the presentation. This is the first time the board has ever discussed this topic. Um, and we're all of a sudden in it as a budget development item in January of the same fiscal year. So I think we need to slow down. Um, we have absolutely no idea what's going on in our transit system right now. The board doesn't. I don't. I know I, we have a lot of empty buses running around. I know we just added some more service, service that I fought for and supported that I don't think is being utilized. So I think we need to start with an analysis of what our system is today, who it's serving, where it needs to serve, where, what the barriers are to ridership in it now. Um, you all know I'm on the Metro board. Metro has done extensive research on this topic and on barriers to ridership. And one of the interesting things that's come across all of our research is that our fares are not the barrier. That's not the reason why people aren't using it. In Loudoun County, our fare is a dollar, right? Do you have any evidence that that dollar fare is the reason why ridership isn't higher? So to be very clear on, on, your, on your question, we do not have definitive data that says the $1 uh, fee is uh, a primary impediment. Uh, we looked at several factors, and again, based on the information that you received tonight, uh, it is an intriguing uh, proposal, not only the, the equity element that is, is, uh, is, is very interesting to be, to be uh, looked at, also the cost savings associated with it. If we did a, a hypothetically a two or three year um, um, pilot on this or an evaluation period, that the, the expenses that we would that we would invest into the replacing all the fare boxes. Well, yeah, I was going to get to that in a second because yes, I yeah. think that's that's for us that's probably the more applicable sure. discussion yeah. here. Um, but um, you know the the, con the concept. I mean, I I, I was telling one of my colleagues, I, I went to APTA last year and sat through a whole multi-hour seminar on this, heard from Kansas City, also heard some of the downsides that they're experiencing, um, which are considerable as well, and we didn't cover some of those, but um, on our fare boxes specifically, so what is the current state of the fare box and exactly how much will it cost? I think it's 1.127 million, but I'm not positive in here, to replace the fare boxes in the buses 
that we're specifically talking about that would this would be applicable to? Certainly. I'm going to ask Penny to, to go into yeah. that a little more detail because she's the pro in that area. So, okay. Penny. Yeah, we, uh, as you'll recall, we put in the CIP last year for 2024 a $4.6 million project for fair equipment replacement for all 125 buses. We subsequently got 80% funding from DRPT for the grant that we applied for to help do the replacement. Specifically, 80% grant. 80% grant. We had assumed 68% when we, when we did the CIP, but they moved it to another category and it gave us 80% um, for removing the fair, uh, not installing fair box equipment on the local fixed route, but routes and paratransit would save $1.2 million. Okay. Yeah. So. Okay. How urgent is the need to replace on the it, current buses? It's very urgent. We we are we're not going on eBay to find parts yet, but we're close. <laughs> yes. So it, we are at at a point where we've got to start replacing equipment. And, and that is one of the issues of timing for us that yeah. the opportunity presented itself. We were looking to we were on a, a, a pricing schedule for January uh, to start purchasing those. Uh, if this was something that the board did want to consider, then we wanted to be able to uh, leverage the offset. Um, Could you yeah. get us an analysis of ridership by route? Yes, sir. We have that data it. for you. We can get it for you. Okay. Um, because I could see this, if we did it, as say, as a pilot, I could see it being on certain types of service, mm -hmm. certain areas of service, something like that, to start with, where it might have the most impact. And then I also, I think we need to have a discussion about what we're running and whether we're running the right level of service for what the ridership is and what the demand is now that we've had Metro open for over a year right. um, and all that sort of thing. Specifically on the school issue, um, couldn't we simply just wave on teenagers? Yes, but then there's a question of age. So uh, it's an age verification. There's an assumption made if we define an age uh, grouping, um, there's still a what they call it, flash passing. I can't remember what they do, but they still have to show their their ID to be to verify their age. If you assign an age grouping, do we have any idea how many riders we have today that are like, say, under eighteen? Do we have any ridership survey data or anything? We, we don't have that data. We don't collect by don't category collect or anything okay. like that. Have we in, have we investigated joining the Metro Lift program, either either opting in for Metro Transit, but also for our own transit, which is the low-income rider program. I believe we've got community members who are participating in that program. When we want to roll that, we are. Is the county facilitating enrollment in that program? Um, if so, could that be extended to LC Transit? If I would have to do further research on that. But when the program was rolled out, WMATA reached out to our agencies that worked with programs that would qualify would identify people who were qualified for that program. So I would have to go, at, go back to uh, WMOD and get verification. Yeah, so the way that program works is yeah. if you're SNAP eligible, then you get a 50% discount on FAIR. And I know Metro has been looking for partners and governments and other agencies to help drive enrollment in that. So I think two-part question to come back with, are we doing that at all for Metro? But Because that's a much bigger FAIR. You know, it's a $6 rail FAIR from here. And second... If we were doing it, could we extend it to our own system as well if we were doing that? All right, Supervisor Brisbane. Thank you very much. So um, thank you for this. I mean, I, I really like the idea. Um, 
<clears throat> it sounds like we're predicting 10 to 20% increase in ridership potentially from the case studies. Um, I also, I mean, just doing back of the napkin math, um, if we're going to save $1.1 million and it normally cost us, what was it, 348000 to operate the fare collection system? We, that's what we generate in fares. That's what we uh, generate in fares. Now. Okay, okay. Um, so, right. So if we lose, if we do it for three years and we lose $1.2 million, we're almost at a wash, if, if I'm doing the back of the napkin math correctly, right? So why not test it for three years? And then after three years, we would be able to go look at some some other better equipment. Um, uh Mr. Brown, is is the operation of the equipment, maintenance of the equipment, and administration problematic? Like, so these are aging and the, and must be replaced. Um, yeah. There, um, there's uh, when you when you have fares, you have to deal with the security with of the of the, yeah. of the funds. So as as Alec mentioned in the in the in the presentation, the actual maintenance and and. Uh, operating and security associated with those is about 10 to 20 percent. We don't know exactly. We haven't t teased down yeah. the the exact percentage, but that is approximately where we are. And you know, we have a, uh, our contract is is over 17 million dollars to operate our 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 transit contract, and 320 or 360 thousand dollars a year is a very small contribution toward that revenue. Right. Right. Um, so there's 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 that element. That was one of the things that intrigued us was that uh, it would actually reduce our administrative burden associated with that, and we would have to do more research. If the board wanted us to explore this in more detail, we'd have to get a lot more granularity on those benefits. But we right. knew on the surface that they're, they are there. But it's certainly not like Parks and Rec, which is revenue neutral, right? Like it pays for itself. It's Correct. A, this definitely is not paying for itself. We'll talk um, about... Not even close. <laughs> no. So... Um, in in the case studies, the national case studies, do you know how much the fare was in those cases? Uh, we do. We uh, <laughs> pardon my hesitation. So uh, yes, we do. We can find that information out. I can I can get that to uh, my colleagues at the county. That that would be. I I don't have it in front of okay. me. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Mm -hmm. I mean, what I'm getting at is. It, it, we might not expect the same results if their fare was 220 a ride or something like that. But I'm, I would be very, very even more. I mean, I'm, I already like this idea, but I, I think that it's, it's another way to justify it if those fares were also like a dollar and they saw that increase in ridership. I mean, the whole reason we brought the BMI was to increase ridership and to promote the idea of using public transit, getting people out of their cars, um, getting them off the roads that we have to maintain, getting the exhaust off the roads that they're using in their cars to help preserve the environment. And to me, this is a, this is a neutral idea for three years to try it. So um, thank you very much for bringing it up. Um, the question, you said the, the grant, though. So the $1.2 million, is that after the DRPT grant for 80%? Yeah, microphone. Oops. That, that is the difference between, that's total cost of 4.6 previous, um, with 125 bus, buses versus 60 buses, assuming we went fare free on the local fixed routes, which is 3.4, uh, 
and the difference is 1.2. Wait, wait a minute, though, because we're combining, when we buy these fare boxes, that was for all our whole fleet, right? The original, the original project was for all of the fleet, 125 buses. But if we go fare-free, we would eliminate um, 20, 65 of those buses. And Supervisor Turner, if I could also qualify that, that is a that is a, de a net reduction of the entire amount. If you take the 80-20 application of that, then you'll see a further, uh, a smaller number of the actual MVTA 30% funds that we're paying for that that 20%. Uh, we were looking at it, just to be transparent, as a net reduction reduction in public fund expenditures, which is the deal. But not our fund. Not exclusively. The MVTA 30% yeah. is, mm -hmm. is ours that we can reallocate, yes. as you know very well. Sure. So that that funding would uh, we could but then I'm be still I'm still not clear on what the 1.2 million actually represents because it's, it's the net. Wouldn't 100%. that be? Yeah, but that would include the the long haul buses as well. Then no, sir. Uh, okay. They're they're it, still going to be done. Those are still okay. going to be done. What 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 gets complicated about this calculation is that when you order 125 buses fare boxes, yeah. the price is cheaper than when you drop down to 60. So we pay a higher fee for an example, project management goes up instead of down, uh, and the cost goes up too with a, a smaller supply of fare boxes for the could, schedule. Could we just have you guys in finance work out an actual cost revenue analysis of what this would cost? We'll provide you with the details of the back of the house of that. We gave you the, the, the end result of that totality of savings off okay. of the total amount. We'll give you the 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 math will show right. our work how's that so i'm not against trying this on a you know fr from especially from the standpoint of it may not make sense to spend the money because we're not collecting enough but i would want a lot more information about like i said the overall system what we're running where who's using it um you know we haven't had that kind of data in a while since we really since COVID. so and we've been waiting i think we all purposely decided let's let some time happen for recovery and all that. I think we're at the point where we're kind of, we are where we are. We're gonna have this discussion on the commuter buses later in the meeting. So what I would prefer to do is to keep this item at the finance committee and continue discussion of it. Um, I think there's interest in pursuing it, but with more, at least for me, with more information, with more analysis, and maybe doing it as a targeted pilot or something like that, if we can identify routes where this would probably be most most beneficial um and then also understanding and we can talk offline a little bit more clearly the fare box issue how many we're going to be buying we also are having a discussion potentially about eliminating some of our commuter bus routes later in the meeting so i have some questions about what that does to the fleet and how that may further change the calculation so you know but wrapping all that in is a more holistic discussion rather than sort of as a one-off that was that's what I would prefer to do, but okay. You would probably want us to pass it right now. I, I would I would pass it yes. right now, but I, I know I don't have the votes for that. But but I also would say, didn't we have a transit summit where we talked about ridership not too long ago, or did we decide? We didn't do it last year. It was we did a transit summit in May or June of 2021. Got it. Okay. Summit. Okay. Yeah, before All right. we really yeah. started doing all this. That's yeah, that's fine. I'm yeah, and I I mean Tim can tell you I already asked when can we do a transit summit. Because I love transit, I really do. I just, I also love I'm warming up operating and you know how this is all supposed to work. And there's a lot of stuff in the industry that can be a little bit nonsensical too. That 
I see a lot of <laughs> Metro. So, and Supervisor Letourneau, at, at, at the ridership data, we've been restructuring how we collect that data in real time using using BI, and it's 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 becoming much uh, easier to to provide it. So, um, for fear of not waiting till summit yeah. to do that, if with your you know, concurrence, I can certainly send that we can have that information sent out to the board in a more yeah. timely manner, uh, just so that it, it is available to you. It's a very, you know, you'll see some of that information for the long haul tonight, um, but it's it's um, it's very interesting data that we're using right now to, uh, in our process of looking at optimizing our whole operation, which is what we're in the process of yep. doing now. And I will also add that the, since we started doing this and since we started our expansion, the cost structure and analysis of how we operate, and I would say how most of the local Virginia operators operate has dramatically changed to the point where Metro's costs, I believe, are now not necessarily higher than what we're paying in our local contract. When the board made decisions around opting out of Metrobus, it was an extremely different environment uh, from a cost structure standpoint. So. A, a broader talk about all of these issues would also, I think, at some point include potentially revisiting that decision um, and figuring out kind of what that looks like from a cost basis compared to running our own system. So. Mr. Hapstreet. Mr. Chairman, do you know when this might come back to the committee? When could staff, could, could it be next month? Depending on the detail of information that we need to get, one month may be a difficult proposition for us. So I suspect why you're asking is because you're, this is a budget development item and you want to know whether you, you should include fares in the budget or not? Yes, sir. My answer is, is still probably yes for now. So, I, so absent any direction from the board, we would assume that fares would continue to be collected. Yes, but could be taken out by board action in the budget process. Right, which would be an increase to the budget. By 300,000, yes. Right. With respect to fare boxes. I think certainly while we continue this discussion here, we probably need to hold on the fare boxes. Is there some timing issue with, are we currently proceeding with fare boxes or? We've gotten a new cost estimate that uh, became effective January 1. We're looking at what that means for the fleet that we have, knowing that we are, have considerations right now with regard to local fixed route fare collection as long with, along with our other discussion item tonight about long haul buses. So we, once we have an indication of how we're gonna go forward, we will recalculate what those costs will be. So can you line that up with coming back to the committee? Yes. It might understand your question is also, how long do we have before we are no longer in compliance with our fare boxes. Is that also, I mean, that, that is a driver for us, and I don't know if we have that information readily available. We, we are looking for parts right now to keep okay. our so, fare boxes. So that is an imminent uh, uh, function for us to, to make a move on. Okay. Imminent. Sure, go ahead, Julie. I, I was gonna suggest maybe my colleagues would be more comfortable with the motion that says that we recommend the Board of Supervisors um, adopt a three-year pilot program for free fares on our fixed route and then that would give three years but it's not necessarily you know 
totally ripping off the Band-Aid. It gives us an evaluation time, and then they have certainty. Mr. Hemstreet has certainty, but we haven't completely taken fares off the table forever. Well, I don't want to take it off the table forever. I'm not necessarily comfortable with the three-year pilot either because we haven't defined what the pilot is. And I think if you listen to the free fares for fixed rate. If you listen to the presentation, though, from our consultant, it was you should do this in the context of a great deal of planning and discussion about where you want your system to go and how you want it to operate. None of which we've done. None of which. So I, the takeaway I have from his presentation is that we're not ready for this yet, and that all these other agencies had a great deal of lead up to include voter referendums and all sorts of other things before they took this step. So if it takes us a little longer, it takes us a little longer, but I don't appreciate getting sort of thrust into January of the budget year having to make a decision like this when we haven't had any discussion or analysis about it. Because it is a bigger discussion than just the 300,000 in this one year. So I think let's, I would still prefer to keep it in the committee at least for a month to see what you can do. And then, you know, I don't personally think it's a big deal if the board decides we want to do it to just take 300,000 out of the budget that's presented to us, or half of that, or something. Okay. It's not like it's, you know. The problem is they don't know what to do about ordering. Well, we just heard two different answers on that, so. <laughs> we have not placed an order for the new fare boxes. We're looking for some guidance on potential changes in the numbers. Um, the other factor here is that we have recently received an FTA grant that requires certain uh, excess vehicles, meaning if we're not reusing those buses such in long haul, such as in long haul, that we need to, to decide how those will be dispersed or eliminated because uh, FDA regs require that we have a 20% spare ratio. And given the, the overall downturn in ridership, we've got more than we need right now. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so, we can delay, um, you know, we, are, we were awaiting this decision, if a decision were to be made as to whether or not we pull the trigger to go and purchase the, the fare box replacements. Because if the board did desire to pursue this, then we would not pursue the fare box replacements. Any um, of them? The long haul obviously needs to, needs to continue. Well, that's the, okay. The, they need to continue. Um, and we have replaced some of those already um, as, as, as they're, well, they've been purchased as the new buses come on. Um, the the MVTA thirty percent funds. Um, I mean, nobody. You, we don't want to waste the money. But as as they as as things progress, we will have to buy them as as single purchases or low or low um, volume purchases to maintain compliance. Uh, the the savings that we were achieving through uh, the bulk is a, is a savings. But we will operationally. We're not going to put a vehicle out of commission because of Fairbox. We will continue to purchase that. Um, so. I don't want to. I don't want to paint the paintbrush here. That if a decision isn't made, we're not going to get the. You know, we're not. We're going to run out of fare boxes. We will make that work. We're just not going to make the wholesale investment at this time until a, a final decision is made because that's just a fiduciary uh, responsible thing. But we do have enough buses in surplus that we can go cannibalize uh, fare boxes if we have to to make that work. So I don't want. I don't want to okay. portray a, a doomsday environment over fare boxes, sir. All right. Great. Very good. We're going to send you back a finance. And this might be one that we might want to have some further offline discussion with individual members of the committee. We were missing two people tonight. Yeah. That was also part of my thinking. Um, and they probably should get a briefing and all that as well. So, yeah. 
Okay. Maybe. Thank you very much. Thank you. Okay, item 18, uh, Volunteer Fire and Rescue Company Budget Enhancement. Good evening. Good evening. Item 18 is um, the first of three budget development items you have on the agenda this evening. Um, this item um, serves to transmit um, the request for additional funding from the, <clears throat> excuse me, Combined Systems Executive Committee um, to the Finance Committee, as well as provide staff's um, analysis of that funding request. Um, in item 18 this evening, um, I think you have a presentation. We're still pulling it up on, on the monitor. Um, but I will just launch into the item. So earlier in at the end of um, 2023, we received a funding request through the Administrative Operations Committee to the Executive Committee and through the System Chief for an additional $500,000 um, that would be provided, is requested to be provided to the volunteer corporations. Um, that would go to the operational support of the volunteer corporations. The board currently has in your budget $6.37 million dedicated to those contributions, and the volunteer companies have requested an additional $500,000 to support their operations, in addition to a 3% annual enhancement on an ongoing basis um, after FY25. Next slide. Your item details, just for some context, the different types of direct and pass-through resources that the county provides the volunteer system. First and foremost is the payment to volunteer companies, again, in the amount of $6.37 million. This funding is distributed between the 15 volunteer fire companies based on what we refer to as the algorithm, which is a methodology agreed to and maintained by the um, combined system administrative operations committee. In addition to the uh, funding that goes into the algorithm, the county also provides volunteer companies with entitlement revenues, more particularly um, the four for life and um, ATL funds. And then the third major source of um, county direct funding is the EMS transport program revenue, which is a pretty substantial revenue um, source that um, has continued to 
become available to volunteer companies since FY26. And the next slide shows you a graphical representation of the resources that the county provides to volunteer companies. So hold on on this. Sure. I think this is important to the discussion. So it's a little hard to tell exactly. This, the trend line here has been going up. But is there like an average or something like that that you can give us on this chart? So the blue line obviously has not changed over the, the period. Yeah, right. um, so I think probably Thomas could probably run an average um, of the other revenue sources while I finish my presentation, if that's all right. Sure. Um, there's also in the item itself a tab tabular breakdown of the numbers. Um, but I will ask Thomas to do that while I continue. If you go to the next slide, please, Thomas. So staff evaluated um, the request from the volunteer companies um, just through a number of different lenses. Uh, first and foremost, we thought it was important. Um, the algorithm funding value, of course, has not been changed since FY15. However, over that same period of time, the county has taken on more and more responsibility for traditionally staffed volunteer shifts. Um, in the item, it notes that um, the combined system is responsible for 145 um, minimum staff positions um, daily. On the daytime shift, career staff, uh, staff 141 of the 145 minimum staff shifts. And on the evening side, um, the careers um, career personnel staff 112 of the 145 minimum staffing shifts. Um, and since as of October 2023, approximately 43% of evening minimally staffed volunteer shifts were being covered by career personnel. And this comparison is just meant to um, put some context to though the amount given to volunteer companies has not changed in eight years. The responsibility of staffing um, a lot of those seats has been more on the county side over that same period. Next slide, please. Um, of course, uh, one of the contributing factors to the requests from the, the volunteer corporations is the site of, of inflation. Year over year, the cost of serv providing services has gone up, which we, we agree, and we wanted to note that over the eight-year period, that funding amount has not increased, but inflation has. Uh, from FY15 to now, the volunteer companies do have the benefit of the EMS reimburse, transport reimbursement program. However, that revenue has been meant to go to enhancements to the system, and so it's not necessarily fair to count that as, as revenue that should be should support current standard operations. Next slide. And finally, we did take a look at um, for tax form 990s um, of all the volunteer corporations just to get an understanding of their fiscal position. Overall, um, tax forms for all the companies were available through 2021. We took a look at the overall picture of their reserves, and it did appear as if most volunteer companies did have sufficient resource reserves, which indicated to us that um, annually volunteer companies were overall on average still able to fund their operations some were on the lower side of a reserve some on the higher side but overall we did see a significant amount of funding in reserve for those volunteer companies Next slide. 
So in conclusion, uh, based on the analysis that we've presented, uh, the Office of Management and Budget does not believe there's sufficient just justification to recommend this funding increase be included in the budget. However, as noted in the staff report, uh, should the board want to consider a funding increase, staff does recommend that you potentially direct staff to be a little bit more involved in how funding is distributed between volunteer corporations or what the funding should be put toward, toward, put toward. Um, an example in the staff report cites that, you know, these volunteer corporations are, are, some have very large budgets and operate like a traditional nonprofit, and so they support staff um, in that nonprofit. The board could direct that some of those funds be used to um, guide more professional management of those nonprofits. Or um, additionally, staff at this point does not have a role in understanding or influencing the algorithm, how funding is distributed between volunteer companies. The board could encourage staff to work with the combined system and the executive committee to understand and add potentially more consistency to that algorithm, understanding expenditures and revenues a little bit better. So at this point, um, we are looking for guidance from the Finance Committee. Of course, the FY25 budget will be proposed next month. Um, and so we are looking for additional feedback on um, how you'd like us to um, deal with that request from the um, Executive Committee. We're happy to take any questions. So is another issue, I think you were kind of getting at this at the end, that we don't really understand the inputs to this calculation. We don't have any influence in the development of that calculation. That's not quite the same thing. I think we know what the inputs are, and I'm not necessarily... Well, like, on a per sort of unit basis, they may be calculating things differently. You know, like, the, the different expenditures, yes. different needs. There's no standardized sort of way of looking at that. Tim's got it. Oh, Tim, no? N no. Okay, um, so rather I'm step. All right, uh, thank you. Um, all right, <clears throat> my, my inclination is to support the volunteer companies and their requests. And so um, when we did an, last month a pre-agenda meeting on this topic, um, I suggested that if there was um, solid data to dissuade me or other supervisors from supporting this request, it would be helpful to have it. Um, I completely understand the county's been putting more resources into this, especially in terms of personnel and covering shifts. Does that necessarily, though, reduce the normal financial obligations of a volunteer company because they've got to, um, they, they may own their station, um, they may own their equipment, and I know, I think Tim had um, said that the county plays a significant role in helping to purchase some equipment, but it, it, it may not be as important that we are covering more of their staffing needs if their other costs, their fixed costs or equipment costs are growing. So 
Can you get into that a little bit? So what I can say is that, yes, the county does contribute significant resources to standardization of equipment purchases, as well as um, putting forward up to 59% funding for apparatus that still are volunteer-owned, considered volunteer-owned. Um, but based on Supervisor Letourneau's comments, I do agree that we do not have a whole lot more visibility on the annual operating um, f budget or the financial condition of those fire companies to fully answer your question. Okay, all right, thank you. Supervisor Brisbane. Thank you, just to confirm, did you say the last time we increased the disbursement was eight years ago? Uh, that Yes, that's correct. Okay, um, I mean, eight years to increase half a million is actually not as drastic as I was initially thinking. Um, I think Mr. Hemstreet wants to chime in on something. I would, if, if you're finished, I was going to just make some comments about the analysis that the budget staff has done. Okay. Um, I'll continue then for just a moment. Um, would it be possible to make the um, contribution or the funding contingent on allowing staff to have some sort of analysis or see behind the curtain it sounds like that's a concern yes I think that would be our recommendation that you would direct staff to work more closely with the executive committee to have more influence or at least transparency on the algorithm and then how, how urgent is the need for the increase is it it would just come in the next budget cycle right Yes, the request is for FY25 for that increase in funding, and then if that is um, given, then a 3% annual increase from there. Yeah, it, and the 3% is new as well. Yes. Oh, interesting. I, I do think that that's a, a bit to ask without us being able to, to see behind the curtain, so to speak. I'm not sure how to handle that with a, a motion tonight um, because I do also want to support our volunteer um, companies, but I do agree with staff that we need to have a little bit more information. Mr. Hampshire. Yeah, I was just going to uh, just kind of restate a little bit of what uh, Ms. Burke has already said, which is, you know, we have not been able to replicate a need financially from the algorithm. The part of the challenge, which I think is where uh, Supervisor Letourneau was going or Tara Letourneau was going is that the way that the algorithm is done is it just accepts everything that a company considers as costs and there's no standardization with respect to costs. So in some cases we've got um, staff that the volunteer corporation has hired. Uh, so we've got one company that has two or three staff that are very well paid to run the corporation and then we've got other companies that do not have any staff at all, but they're treated the same with respect to how the algorithm is, is put together. The other thing that, that I will say in those last eight years is that the, and I'm not sure how clearly we did or how great a job we did in terms of making it come through, uh, both in the item, but the, the, the portions of the system that the county is now covering or paying for has only increased. So we have increased our support, financial support of the system 
Uh, and we do not have a lot of insight into the expenditures uh, because, and, and part of the reason has been that the way that the, that the board provides money is you provide a donation. So these are 501c3 corporations. You provide a donation to them. Part of what we did with the 2014 ordinance is we then set up a, a self-governance structure for the corporations. And so they are responsible for uh, putting the algorithm together and then distributing the funds, which is what which is why we don't really have a lot of insight into it because it's done through their self-governance model. Uh, the other thing that I'll say is that there are also companies, and Ms. Burke started to get into that at a high level, but there are also companies that do not provide any operational service that continue to receive uh, funding from, from the algorithm. And so, you know, that's a significant difference from where we were eight years ago in terms of the contribution of some of these companies. And so I just want to make sure I kind of emphasize some of the things, some of these things that are in the report uh, and just say, you know, we're perfectly fine if you want to give them more money. However, just understand that where we think those funds are going is primarily for them to hire staff and to also purchase things that are not necessarily directly operational, which is a difference in where that funding was going uh, say 10 years ago. So with that, and I had the benefit of the chair's briefing as well, I had all that discussion, which led me to believe that before we commit any additional funding, we need to have a discussion around the algorithm, around what the needs are, this equation of us essentially, there is less volunteer service being provided today, significantly less. The county is essentially double paying because we have we're not we have not reduced our contribution and we are paying for that additional service all those runs that are being run by career staff now so at this point in time we need to have visibility into what the algorithms are what sort of standardization there is what level of support the board wants to provide for non-operational companies and that's just a policy question we haven't had any of that discussion. So I'm open to having those discussions in the Finance Committee. Um, I will say the 2014 ordinance was one of the more painful things that I've ever been a part of on the board because there's very strong feelings on this topic and we have some absolutely phenomenal volunteers, many, many phenomenal volunteers providing an incredible service throughout the county, which we should not ever diminish. But we have this governance uh, responsibility here and funding responsibility. So I am not comfortable directing the county administrator to put the money in the budget this year. I think this could be though a discussion that we have in the finance committee to understand all of this and perhaps even figure out a, you know, a cost structure that makes more sense. So that's where I am. Supervisor Rumpstead. <clears throat> Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Um, Refresh my memory, Megan. The costs of acquiring equipment are going up, and we pay for part. We pay for a, per, a significant percentage of new equipment for the companies. Are we covering, through our contributions, the increased cost of, say, a new fire engine? Are, are we covering that? enough so that staff would argue we don't need to give $500,000. The board's funding policy for 
capital apparatus is to contribute 59% to a match of 41%. So we've kept up with the funding levels in the CIP that has increased year over year. Um, and then the cost to purchase equipment like um, SCBAs or um, other fire equipment is escaping my brain right now, but the, the county bears that cost totally on our side because we want standardized equipment between career and volunteers. So, so we're paying for 59%, but 41% is being paid for by the company. So is, is that 41% going up in total dollar amounts to the point that their, their request is rational, legitimate, uh, justified? That was not specifically mentioned as a justification for their funding request, but general inflationary pressures was the justification for the funding request. Do you agree that general inflationary pressure impacts them in, an, in a negative way as it does us? Yes, it increases costs, however, the cost to provide staffing also has affected us, I think, pretty True. significantly over the past. True. I, I, I understand it is affecting us. I just, I, I don't want them to be operating at a loss because we are not keeping up with their increased inflationary expenses. Um, so th thank you. Okay. So I think there's consensus from two out of three of us anyway that at this time we're not ready to direct the county administrator to put this money in the budget, but that we are willing to have further discussion and we would like to have more insight into the practices of who's getting funding now, how the algorithm works, and then identifying what these specific needs are. And if we need to you know, potentially do that, we may have other opportunities to do that throughout the year. So. Okay, thank you. Okay. Okay. Thank you. Uh, we're just going to take a, like a really quick three, four minute break before we finish.
Okay, almost there. Two more items. Getting Hello there. again. Um, Fortunately, this is not the staff that had to be with the board at 2 a.m. last night, oh but God. but Tim was, and the, the clerks, yes, yeah, you were. So, well, we'll try I, to make it snappy. I couldn't. I can make this as short as you need it to be, but this this item and presentation just is a follow up to the discussion we had at the December. Um, actually November Finance Committee and then December board meeting where we recommended and the board approved the appropriation of $40 million to upgrade our enterprise resource planning um, <laughs> system for both the county government and LCPS because this project is being accelerated um, in the CIP. It's typical practice for us to bring a budget development item on that specific project. So staff from DIT are here, um, but there are no updates to the presentation uh, from the staff report. Um, we can go through the presentation or we can take questions. I think questions are a great idea. Okay. Unless you guys really want the staff report. <laughs> Thank you. I, I think also that we had quite a discussion about this during the fund balance conversation Correct. okay um, the only question I have is once everything's upgraded uh, I'm understanding this is also for the HR system so and I don't know if you can answer this question what HR the um, job application system or no, the um, yes. hiring like, yes so that is a separate system that is currently being upgraded as well Oh, uh, it will be or it already is? It's part of this it's 40... in progress. Oh, okay. Well, I can bring my question to you offline then. Thank you. Okay. Okay, so I think um, we understand this is coming. It's a lot of money, but we're going to hit the point where we have to do it at some point eventually. It decouples us from the school system, which has operational benefits for both in terms of being able to be efficient and actually get things done. So we're moving forward. Yes. All right. Which brings us to our last item, Metro Rail financial update. <laughs> so it's kind of cool today because I chaired a finance committee meeting for the Metro Board, too, where we moved the budget forward. So um, I can certainly speak to some of this, but there's good data in here on our situation in terms of taxes or things like that. So I don't have a presentation, but I do just wanted to provide some opening remarks. So item 20 this evening is our annual Metrorail financial update. This item is being presented as a budget development item. Uh, typically it's not, just given the recommendations that staff has put forward specifically about Loudoun County Transit for FY25. Section one of this item presents very positive actual as well as forecasted revenue generated in the Metrorail Service District, which is used to fund Loudoun's construction op funding commitments and related debt. The levy on the real property is 20 cents per $100 of assessed value, and the levy is to remain in effect no longer than necessary to repay the county's obligations. Based on current projections, there will be sufficient funding revenue sufficient revenue generated to pay the county's obligations and over the next year staff will evaluate the possibility of defeasing the debt more quickly over time or lowering the tax rate. Sections two and three of this item provide information about the county's operating and capital funding obligations as a WMATA compact member. 
As the committee may be aware, WMATA is experiencing a significant funding shortfall. Originally projected to be $750 million, that shortfall was closed to $433 million in FY25, according to the general manager's proposed budget materials. I'm not up to speed on what happened today at uh, the Finance Committee meeting, um, but service cuts and increases in fares um, are significantly impacting the budget proposal. There's not a clear resolution to address WMATA's funding issues at the state level, but um, action will be needed. Uh, because Loudoun's operating subsidy is constrained from increasing more than 3%, the fiscal impact to Loudoun's FY25 budget can be funded and is uh, established to be estimated to be in the $4 million range. The operating subsidy is funded by board policy with gasoline tax revenue. Loudoun's capital subsidy is forecast to increase in line with prior year projections and is funded with NVTA 30% revenue. Staff will keep the board updated on any legislati legislative action in Richmond with regards to Ramada funding, and I know we are aware of a bill that dropped yesterday in the House that we're currently looking at. And then finally, Section 4, as it relates to FY25, of the item focuses on recommendations regarding the county's long-haul commuter bus service. By policy, this service, which operates in the morning and late afternoon rush hours from Loudoun to locations in Virginia and the district, is meant to be revenue neutral with costs supported by fares and advertising revenue. The board has waived its revenue neutrality requirements through FY24. So in preparation for the FY25 budget, staff has evaluated ridership on the county's long haul routes to, in order to arrive at recommendations regarding revenue neutrality. Scenarios for the board's consideration for FY25 are detailed in table six of your item. Of the lo 50 long haul routes, 11 by staff's um, analysis are considered to be underperforming, meaning there are on average nine or fewer daily riders. The policy decisions that staff is requesting the board to consider as part of the 25 budget work sessions is how to address revenue neutrality and whether or not th the board would be supportive of eliminating the very underperforming 11 routes that I just mentioned. So table six includes a, a number of different scenarios that we put together for the finance committee's review ahead of the budget proposal. Um, they all consider ridership, revenue neutrality, and what a revenue neutral fare would be based on different route changes. Um, so item, I mean, excuse me, option five is, staff recommend, is the staff recommendation um, this would eliminate 11 underperforming routes that, again, would have on average nine or fewer riders daily, um, and a three-year phased approach to revenue neutrality. So we've calculated revenue neutrality at status quo to be $28 per single ride. That's a pretty significant increase from $10, which is current. Um, and so if the board continues to maintain its revenue neutrality policy, we would re recommend a phased implementation toward revenue neutrality, um, and that's what item five considers. It considers cost-effective um, route elimination as well as a phased approach so that we can reach revenue neutrality but also take into consideration the impact of fare increases on ridership over a few years. So the FY25 budget, um, as you will likely see it in February, has been prepared with no change to this program. 
uh, to allow the board maximum flexibility should you want to take up this discussion and work sessions in March. Um, and we are looking for the finance committee's feedback going into the March budget deliberations. Happy to take any questions. Okay, so we really have like a bunch of completely different topics yeah. here in one item. And I wouldn't necessarily call the last one Metro Rail financial update. Uh, so let's take them one at a time, uh, perhaps. Let's start with um, anything from anybody up here about the data on the tax revenues and how the tax districts are doing and all those kind of things. No. Okay. Which is generally they're doing well. So they're, you know we're not going to have any issues there. Subsidy payments. Um, so I can give a little bit of an update on this. So essentially, um, we've calculated the need um, when you boil it all down to be about $130 million for the Commonwealth of Virginia. Um, and of that, state law requires there to be a 50% local match. So essentially, what we're asking for from the General Assembly is going to be $65 million from the state, which would then necessitate a $65 million increase in local subsidy split amongst the metro jurisdictions. Um, I don't remember off the top of my head exactly what Loudoun County's share is of that $65 million. It's relatively small because we're, you know, I don't remember the percentage, 4 or 5% basically of, of the overall. So the, the, the discussion that the county administrator and I have had from the beginning has been that we should plan on kind of a worst case scenario as a budget holder. Don't assume that we're going to get the state money, but if we do, you know, we'll likely end up with. So I guess my question to you, Tim, would be what are you using as kind of your baseline going into the budget? That we have to cover the entire subsidy? I just want to make sure I'm answering that question. For for the WMATA, what we pay WMATA. Operating, yeah. Well, operating. operating capital, yeah. We are using the budget that was posted on December 14th. General Manager's proposed budget. Correct. That is Which what does doing. not include any additional state aid. It does not. We're aid. using the raw okay. number that is in that presentation. Okay. And even the maximum number, if we assume the whole 750, Loudoun County could still cover. But what we're using is that December 14th number, which is much smaller. Okay. So the way this would play out then, I mean, we're stuck at Metro because our whole budget is dependent on this, but um, throughout the legislative session, if there is funding that becomes available through the budget process, it may essentially, you know, half or reduce that number that we're locally responsible for. And That's that would be a revenue positive action for the board for compared to where you are with your budget presentation. That's correct. I think the other thing that I would want to say is we're utilizing gas tax that we have available and has been set aside for us within NVTC. So all that would happen is it would lengthen or make longer the number of years that we can pay for the WMATA piece using that same funding source. So it's not tax dollars. We're not using anything out of the general fund, so there's no impact on our tax rate. Yeah, which is important to say because it's gas tax money. Um, table three here, is that showing, that's showing our operating subsidy based on the GM's proposed budget? 
Yes, and that, okay. yes, yes. All right, so this is like the worst case scenario numbers here. Yes. Okay. Any questions, discussion about that section? Okay. I'm sorry, I'm, yeah. I'm confused. Okay. Um, the subsidy number that's in the budget is what? Based on this, for the operating subsidy, it would be 19 million. 19.9 million. 19.9 million. And for capital, it would be 7.9 for FY25. And that's based on a budget in which Metro's entire gap has to be made up by localities through subsidy with no state aid. Oh, okay, okay, okay. And then. It, does the gap assume the service cuts? Yes. Oh. Yes. Closing nine stations or something like that? Ten. Closing ten. Yes. But, so, if, if state aid is available, then that all becomes sort of added back in. It still would reduce our subsidy. Okay. Either way, the subsidy number is not coming out of, it's coming from gas tax revenue, not our tax rate, essentially. Has Metro Board talked about which stations are going to close? The general manager has proposed that the 10 lowest ridership stations should be closed with, without having two in a row be closed. Eight out of those 10 are in Virginia. Mm. The board has not agreed to that because where I mean, what we move to public comment today is like a doomsday budget that we don't we hope is not really going to happen so we're not going to get into deciding exactly what closes and things like that until we know better where we're actually going to be for, for funding but because of timing he has to still present his budget and then we have to have this discussion around layoffs because these are all represented employees so they're not all, but most. So there's like a six-month runway in order to lay them off and all that. So we have to start that process that we hope we're not going to have to finish, basically. Right? Okay. Yes. For for the chair. Um, so if <clears throat> if the rule is they would not close two in a row, I assume one or more of the lowest performing stations is probably Silver Line in Loudon, or do you think not? Loudon Gateway Station is definitely one of the lowest performing stations. All right. But that would keep Ashburn open? Yeah, and it, I don't believe it's in the top. It's in the bottom 10 anyway. All right. Okay. It actually does quite well. All right. Thank but you. But there are other Silver Line stations in Fairfax County that would be, if we follow that model, we may not. Uh, well, first of all, I, should, I mean, I, I think the first thing to come off the cut list will be closing stations, actually. So, but... Okay, so let's go to the long haul commuter bus service piece of this, which I think is, is, I could sort of repeat my speech from earlier on, I think we need a holistic discussion of this service. We had all kind of agreed that we wanted to give some time for COVID and for ridership to come back and all that. Um, I don't know what our percentage is of pre-COVID, but it's pretty, it's pretty low, isn't it? Do you know what it is? 
I don't have the exact number, but it is. Is it like below 50%? Does Scott know? So routes are at uh, about 40%, ridership's about 25% pre-COVID. Ridership is 25% pre-COVID. Yeah. And again, this is, this is an increasingly expensive service that we're providing, given what's happened with contracts and salaries and all that stuff. So we're, provide, we're spending a lot more, and we're serving 25% of the same people that we used to. At some point, we have to acknowledge they're all not coming back because the nature of their work changed and all that. And then that necessitates a discussion about what the actual need is that we're providing. And I think it's a very different discussion than it is on local service because even at $10, these aren't cheap. So the people we're serving are a little bit different and maybe not as transit dependent as others um, for, for the service. And so staff is proposing that we cut the 11 lowest routes. Um, I, there was a table provided to the committee at the end of the presentation. You'd have to go all the way to the end. I mean, no offense, but this thing's like almost indecipherable because the root numbers don't match up. Um, I know Tom talked to you today and he was able to help me kind of understand it a little bit, but um, this isn't going to mean anything to most people up here. And the question that all the board's going to want to ask is, well, what routes are being cut? So I do think we need something that actually details which routes are being proposed to cut. Now, you can see with some of these, I mean, this is average daily ridership per route. So there are one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine of these that have under 10 riders on them. And these are buses that seat how many? 55. 55. So I can understand why staff's making this proposal, and I, I think I'm in agreement. But again, it's a little difficult to be making these kind of decisions in a real vacuum without looking at kind of a more holistic view of what we're doing. Because you know some of these routes we're basically competing against the Silver Line on at this point, which we're also spending pretty good money to run buses to those stations. So you have to wonder whether, you know, I can, we can maybe start with this 11, but how much of this really makes sense at this point. And then we should also look at, from the rider perspective, what are these destinations and how easy are they to be served by, by WMATA? You know, for instance, Pentagon, which has traditionally been one of our big destinations, is kind of difficult to get to via rail. It's a multi-stop you got to change trains. So I can understand we would may want, maybe want to maintain that service, you know, irrespective, but, or some of it. Um, some of these other routes, on the other hand, are almost parallel. So that's the discussion I would like to have. Um, you know, it sounds like we kind of need a transit summit, I think, to, to do all this. Um, but those are just my sort of free, free-flowing thoughts. But let me turn it over to Supervisor Brisbane. Thank you. Uh, you. You raised some of the things that I was going to ask. Do we do we think that the ridership has not come back because of metro and work changes? In other words, do you think some people are riding metro instead of our long haul buses? Our ridership is not going to be what it was in the past. It just simply isn't. I think. As, as I've stated before, what we found is our local route system. 
uh, not necessarily the routes to the Silver Line, but the routes around the community served our community well during COVID. And while ridership is not tremendous on those routes and will get you more holistic information as Mr. Yeah. Letourneau has requested, those routes do serve needs of our community. Um, and um, our long haul still has not come back the way it was. Um, I think we're running 50 routes compared to what was the number pre 119 pre-COVID. Wow. So it's significant. It's yeah. it's it's a whole new world in transit. Mr. Letourneau's been struggling with this with Lamada because right, it's part right. of what we're dealing with. But um, ridership today on transit is very, very different than pre-COVID. Long haul was our moneymaker for us pre-COVID. It's not Interesting. But, okay, so it, do you think it's more the change in work environment? On the long haul, metro? definitely. Yeah, okay, yeah. okay. Um, and uh, do you think that, well, echoing what um, Chair Letourneau said, it's difficult for me to just say cut the nine buses or cut the nine routes. 11? I think you guys want to do 11, right? 11. I'm I did I don't, nine because I was under. Oh, I don't know. 10, why. Okay, but, maybe that's why I had nine in my head. Yeah. Um, it's hard for me to make a recommendation on that or endorse that without knowing where those routes are. Um, and I, my other question would be, uh, and, and I understand we're not, we don't, we shouldn't be right. I guess we really should not be driving a bus with four people a day on it. I, I agree with you, but I think for us in our positions, we really need to know how this may or may not impact our constituents. That's the thing. Um, and so that's why we just kind of need to know. I'm not going to say I'm going to fight for a bus that takes six people from, you know, right. Our Lady of Hope down to the Pentagon if there's only six people on it on average. We but will provide more comprehensive information. That's great. Um, and then the other thing I, I might like to see is, is there a way to combine? You probably have already done this, but is there a way to combine the routes um, at all so that so, uh, Vice Chair uh, Brisman, this is not an action item. It's a lot. Of, it, it's really designed for us to get feedback around this issue, which oh, okay. is exactly what we're receiving. Okay. <laughs> the the um, and I want to frame that because it's important. If you look at the the fiscal impact of this item, we're recommending that uh, absent different direction, we're requesting that the that we're going to continue status quo, which is currently an, a waiver of the revenue neutrality for the commuter service buses because there is absent some very clear and somewhat draconian action um, we would need to raise these rates to $22 each way right now and that Mr. Letourneau said it a lot better than I'm going to say it but that turns into a death spiral because when you increase rates right. you have a certain percentage of ridership loss and then you have to increase rates again and to offset that if you're going to maintain revenue neutrality on that and then you have additional uh, ridership loss so it gets into a very difficult situation uh, and we ran through many of those scenarios and uh, wisely the recommendation was to to uh, ask for the consideration of the status quo which is what the fiscal impact says we're going to continue status quo on that asking for the the um, the revenue neutrality waiver to continue and then we can further look into uh, how is the best, what are the best solutions to deal with this long haul. Right now we're looking at, you know, these 11 very low performing um, 
uh, buses that we would recommend in a, the appropriate venue to, to look at cutting those. Okay. Uh, we don't plan on taking that action based on this. Uh, it, we just wanted to kind of share the, 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 the data with you. The okay. primary output, and please correct me if I misspoke because you're the budget person, but this, the status quo is continue to waive the, the revenue <laughs> neutrality, right? Yes, and we owe the Finance Committee a report back on revenue neutrality as part of the budget development process. Unfortunately, this is coming in January because we didn't have a December meeting. Um, but the intent of this item was to lead into should the Finance Committee and Board want to have a discussion during March work sessions, this is a topic that we said during the FY24 project process we needed to come back and come to you with recommendations for FY25 okay okay I got it um, I think mr. Brown the death spiral scenario we should have brought you to the SCC hearing to talk about <laughs> that <laughs> yeah um, I I don't have as much of a problem perhaps as others in letting letting this service just go away. <clears throat> so I would certainly support the staff recommendation to do it over a period of time. I, I don't see the logic in subsidizing this service since I guess if we go for revenue neutrality, it'll kill it anyway. Um, it's just too expensive to maintain. And I think as, as the chair pointed out, it competes with Metro. Um, so I'll go with number five, the staff recommendation, phase, phase it out over three years. If we figure revenue neutrality just is not gonna work because we won't have enough people using it. Well, so the step number five is to phase in a fare increase, which I think would cause a death spiral. So, we're not going to have a $22 fare. Like, you know, nobody's going to do that. I do think, I'll make a couple of statements. I think we should have a work session on this, or this should be a subject for a work session. We should be prepared to discuss specifics. There is a savings, a local tax funding reduction savings for us. You know, just those 11 routes would save two to two and a half million dollars, which I think will probably be welcome for us in a work session. Um, I also think we should increase the fare from $10, not to, not to reinstate the revenue neutral policy, but simply when's the last time we raised the $10 fare? It's been a long time, right? Probably f at least five years ago. Yeah. I mean, when so, to, yeah. I mean, a lot of transit agencies do it annually. Obviously, COVID kind of but you know, Metro's talking about a 25% fare increase as part of the discussion. I think it won't be that high, but it will be a fare increase. You know, we should, it should probably go to, I don't know if it's $12 or whatever the number is, probably go up a little bit. And then we should look at how many routes to cut. Um, I'm not sure if it's 11 is the right number. I think we would like to see all that data and d dive into what we could, you know, and talk more with you but your recommendation is 11, so that's a good starting point to have some savings. So I think we're interested in this discussion. We're going to have to continue to waive the fair neutrality policy, but I think we should put a fair increase on the table and talk about reducing some of this service 
and potentially further reducing the service and phasing out some of it over time. Um, perhaps, you know, initially these 11 routes and then maybe look at some additional reductions beyond that for the following year, you know, depending on and giving people more time and that kind of thing. So that's kind of where I'm at. Sound good? Thank you. Okay. You need anything else from us? Okay. Well, that is the last item to come before the committee, and we are adjourned.